I, I, I've got to say that I keep, I, I keep on saying at the start of these, these podcasts, oh yeah, this is like Kino Kingdom 19. It's not. It's like 15. So I'm, uh, when I'm editing it, I think, hang on, I've got the right one. So I'm not going to say which one this is until I actually know. <laughs> yeah, until it becomes an actual fact. <laughs> yeah, I'm not just going to just say numbers. Um, like the kid on a Mercury Rising. So, um, niche, niche. So yeah, I, I've um, I'm trying to think. I've got, I've been more gaming than than film this this last week or two since we last did a podcast. So, mm. I've actually I've actually only got um, was it one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight films. So it's pretty it's pretty pretty light on my side. I'm assuming though that you've got four hundred thousand on your side. Yes, and they're all horror films. Can't wait. This is. First, really? yeah, this is a first like Halloween special, really, as far as I'm concerned. Um, yeah, well, um, so the ones I've got are Two Guns, Wishmaster 2. You'll notice I didn't say Wishmaster, <laughs> straight to the sequel, straight to the quality. Um, Mile 22, Hard to Kill, The Gentleman, Inheritance, Mara, and I believe there was another one as well that I've written down here somewhere, Estranged. Right. So that's mine. I've got a f- couple of horrors on mine um, of yeah. their scariness. So what what have you got on the menu? I have uh, Madhouse, Creep and Creep 2, Dead Silence, Insidious Chapter 2, American Mary, Demon House, Suspiria, 1977, mm. Ghostbusters 2, The House at the End of the Street, uh, Vampires vs. the Bronx, Orphan and as above, so below. These, yeah, go on. Sorry, I, 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 do you say orphan as well? Yes, yes, yeah. I've seen a lot of these. When you say creep, are they the ones that star? Um, Mark I was forgetting Mark something, Mark Duplass. Yeah, oh yeah, that's cool. yeah. <clears throat> this is going to be yeah. quite a chatty one then, because I think I've seen a lot of your films. Yeah, I think I've seen one or two of yours. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it's they're all horror films. I've just been watching horror films this month so far. Please say. I suppose you've got like a couple of years with like a, a new child to to watch all the like the, as foul a horror as you want before they're old enough to say, <laughs> "Dad, what, what's wrong with you?" <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, apparently, up to the age of two, they they're not capable of um, like right, building any long term memories. So you can basically watch what you want at this stage. Oh, wow! Okay. They'll just have flashes uh, in their older life of just thinking, "Bloody hell!" Yeah. And that's it. That's, that's, that's yeah. just life. have slightly traumatic flashbacks of like really horrendous torture porn. Yeah. <laughs> traumatic flashbacks to like like them looking at a screen and just seeing colours of like red splashes and like hor- horrific sort of gargled screams and like flesh tearing and then and then they'll have a flash of like looking at you side on and you frowning and saying oh this isn't very good uh, like over and over for every horror film you watch yeah so basically just the experience of watching a Dario Argento film really yeah so, um... <laughs> hashtag oh, you add you add him but you add him yeah. uh, <clears throat> so yeah, I mean, obviously, before we kick off, um, I managed to... Uh, well, actually, this time I got contacted by a sponsor. Usually, I have to go on a website and sort it out. But, um, yeah, I've managed to sort this out. So what I'll do is I'll quickly knock the sponsorship out, and then we can go straight on. You may as well kick off, because you've got more than me. Um, so, for this podcast, we are sponsored by 
CelebritySexMasks.com Are you looking to spice up your love life? Has your partner hinted that she wants to turn up the heat in the bedroom? And I don't mean the thermostat. They sent me this to read up, but they said, I don't mean the thermostat, haha. I don't know if they mean I should laugh or say haha. So I'll do, I'll do both. I don't mean the thermostat, hmm, haha. Head to our site and get yourself a high-quality latex sex mask. Our full range is now on sale. You can choose from lifelike replicas of Walter Matow, Clint Howard, Ron Howard, Russ Abbott, Ernest Borgnine, Wes Bentley, Al Cliver, John Voigt, the Captain from Lethal Weapon, Christopher Lloyd, not that one, Armin Mullerstahl, and the entire cast of Dad's Army. And always remember our motto, it's not cheating if you were staring into the dead, empty rubber eyes of a celebrity sex mask. So, that was, um, is that nice of them to cover the cost of the podcast? Yeah, that's really good of them to reach out to us that way. Thank you. If you could... Celebrity sex masks. If you could wear any any celebrity sex mask during lovemaking, what, what would it be? Out of that list, or just out of anyone? Well, we'll stick to that list, obviously, so it's, you know, a little bit of extra promo, a little, little bump for the website. Well, I mean, I'm tempted, to, I mean, the obvious choice would be Walter Matthau, obviously, but I'm tempted to say Al Cliver, because that way I'd not only, you know, get to wear the mask of one of the great actors of his generation, but also spread the word, you know, spread, it is... spread the love, because not that many people know his name, and he deserves to be known. The man who cannot act as a person standing still. Well, I was just about to say this, because, I mean, if I, if I, like, try to play a joke on, say, Faye, and I, like, strip completely naked, and I put on Al Cliver Celebrity Sex Masks, available from CelebritySexMasks.com, CelebritySexMasks.com, sorry, and I walked into the bedroom, and she woke up and turned around, and I was just standing stock still, naked, with an Al Cliver Celebrity Sex Mask on, she would know that it wasn't Al Cliver and it was me dicking around, because I would be able to convincingly stand still. So she would be like, oh, I know that's not you, Al. I know it's, I know it's you, Brit. So maybe if she saw some repeated footage of you, <laughs> <laughs> repeated footage of me like tripping someone up and then constantly just kicking them in the side and they just roll over all the time. Um, I've never I'd... seen so many people just get kicked in a film. Can't believe that was <laughs> the, the final swan song for the Avengers. <laughs> cool. Right then. That's the nonsense out of the way. What are you going to launch this podcast off with? I'm going to launch it off with Madhouse, which uh, I watched on Arrow. Um, So this was, uh, they're all horror films, but this, so this was directed by a video G, a video G uh, Asanitis in 1981. Now he is uh, a director who's better known as Oliver Hellman. Um, and he was also the uncredited uh, co-director of Piranha 2, The Spawning, which, okay. if you remember, was James Cameron's first feature. Uh, right. The same year, actually, 1981. Um, so, yeah, so it is a cheap slasher from the director of one of the most famously bad films ever made, mm-hmm. which doesn't bode well, and yet is actually pretty good. So Okay. The, yeah, it's quite surprising, this. So the, the story involves this pair of twins uh, and in childhood one of the twins physically abused the others twin girls 
in adulthood, the abuser, uh, she has all sorts of medical conditions, uh, like disfiguring med medical conditions. And the, the victim, uh, who is our protagonist named Julia, uh, she's fit and healthy and she works at a school for deaf children. Now, when uh, the girl's uncle invites Julia to visit her sister at an asylum, uh, because her condition is worse and she goes there and Julia is threatened by threatened with death by her sister uh, and she gets the hell out of there. Um, okay. So the mad sister basically then escapes the mental hospital and then people around Julia start dying, usually mauled to death by a dog. Just, they're pretty well done, the kills actually, the dog kills. Um, so that's pretty cool. Um, obviously Julia is becoming more and more scared because this she assumes her sister is coming for her anyway the uh the killer in about it's sort of two thirds way through the killer reveals themselves uh it's not quite as simple as uh, you'd think and at that point the film turns into this like extended version of the end of the texas chainsaw massacre you know with the mad family all crowded around the dinner table so okay. it all gets pretty twisted at the end it's a really atmospheric and and quite well made film, and there are some good tension scenes and some pretty brutal kills. To be honest, what uh, are the makeup the effects blood... like? Is it, if it's brutal? Well, <laughs> well, there's some okay, like like uh, kind of gore effects. The blood isn't exactly bang on in terms of looking like blood. <laughs> it's pretty bright. <laughs> oh. <laughs> It's yeah, <laughs> it's a bit Italian, um, but yeah. So uh, and the act, the acting's completely over the top in in quite a deliberate way though, um, not in a bad acting way. If you see what I mean. Um, there's some pretty good twists and turns, fairly fairly telegraphed to be fair. Mm. The twists and turns, but you know it's, it's all there. Um, yeah, and uh, there, you know, there are so many lame slasher films from that period obviously, but there are some gems as well. And this one has enough sort of vaguely original ideas to stand out. And it has some of that kind of oppressive Freudian weirdness of something like Sleepaway Camp uh, in the final act, which is always good. So I enjoyed it. Yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. It's good. So Madhouse. It, sounds, it doesn't seem like it's in a superficial slasher. It seems like there's a little bit more going on under the bonnet. No, it's not. No, it's like... The least um, it's like one it's really lurid and silly but almost like it, it has aspirations to something higher it reminds me a little bit of like the early brian de palma work because he was making some similar stuff uh like sisters for example which had a similar kind of conceit about it um where yeah lurid and silly but were obviously made with real thought behind it so yeah that. <clears throat> um, that's good, and that is one I'm going to watch. And but that was an Arrow, isn't it? So I guess that's yes. not on Amazon Prime. More okay. I'll make a note of that actually because that does sound cool. That does sound like something. I I've been in the in the mood for. I didn't realize what I was in the mood for, and I was watching a couple of horrors, and I thought, no, what I want is an '80s. I want an '80s slasher. That's what I want, you know, yeah. with like loads of like synth music, and so that that's cool. I'll see if I can um, get that. Even if I have to buy it, that's cool. Um, I'm gonna. I wasn't gonna do this, but 
I watched Hard to Kill last night with Steven Seagal, and I want to spend a good 10, 15 minutes on this <laughs> um, with you, if that's cool, okay. because I, like I, said, I haven't got many films, but I, there's a whole, so much. I, I felt like my understanding of Steven Seagal and his place in cinema, it, 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 I kind of, it solidified for me personally last night. Um, so what happened? Well, there's a bit of background to this. As you know, I am in love with Scott Adkins, and I've been watching his yes. Art of Action cinema. And he managed to get Steven Seagal on there for, for last week, which is what made me want to watch this film. Um, right. And he wisely, when they were doing the interview, he didn't talk about any of the, the many controversies of his personal life and his abilities and his claims and whatever. They just talked about his martial arts background and his kind of early career. Up to Glimmerman when everything was just crap. As we know, it is literally crap. Everything after executive decision in Glimmerman is absolute lazy nonsense. So, of course, I realized that my... Because we've probably, between us, probably seen between, what, like, seven and ten Steven Seagal films over the last ten, oh, fifteen years. And they're all, yeah. all, like, systematically awful. So I was thinking, uh, he is someone that I... I remember watching his films as a kid. And I remember thinking he was cool. But I had no... I'd never like revisited them, like a revisit sort of say Dolph Lundgren or uh, Van Damme stuff. He kind of completely dropped off my radar and become this joke. So I was listening to this podcast, and obviously he's an Aikido Grandmaster, and I thought, oh, do you know what? I'm gonna, as an adult, really rewatch. And I, I got a list of um, uh, his best films, not so much IMDb rated. It was a genuine fan of his films, and he said his his best film is Out for Justice, which I couldn't find. And the second one, the second best out of his 25 films or wherever it is, was Hard to Kill. Mm. So I thought, right, I'll, I'll watch that. That'll be like, I know I'm going to get what is recognized by his fan base as one of his best films. <sighs> I will, uh, it, it's, it's, it was odd. It's an odd thing to watch because uh, the film, right, his style of martial arts is is quite cinematic, but it relies on people running up to him and him basically just flipping their wrists so they they fall over. Yes. That's it's used it appears to be like using their own momentum against them. So you don't get lots of cool, well choreographed stand up fight scenes. It's basically people getting flipped through stuff, which is fine yeah. because he's obviously very. They're all, he it tends to be, <clears throat> they tend to be over very quickly, doesn't he? He dispenses yeah. with them swiftly. I, when I was reading about him, they was they just said he never in any of his films faces any kind of real serious physical credible threat. It's just him. Not, just not even Tommy Lee Jones. Um, oh God, that my fight is awesome. I will say that that is an awesome my fight. It always used to make me kind of wince a little bit because you think there would just be so many like so many cuts so fast. Um, so yeah, and, and so moving away from that, that's why I watched the film, and I was so I just want to make it clear to everyone listening, I was completely in the mood for this, and so I chucked it on, and the the, the story of Hard to Kill is Steven Seagal is kind of an undercover cop at the start, and he is. Uh, it, William Sadler's in it, credited as Bill Sadler. It's 1990. So um, he is kind of filming on this enormous handheld 80s video camera. Enormous! Um, he is filming this like meeting of, of a dodgy senator played by William Sadler. And he catches it, and then they, they realise that Steven Seagal's filmed them. He gets away. They kill his family. And uh, they kill him, or they think they've killed him, but actually he's in a coma for seven years. And then he wakes up seven years later, which is when the film kind of starts... Um, it's already hard to kill, isn't he? Yeah, he's really tough to kill. Um, also, with this, there's um, every he falls in love with Kelly LeBrock, who I don't know where she's from, but she's got a really bizarre English accent in this film, and I'm pretty convinced that Kelly LeBrock cannot act. It's ridiculous. It's just a, 
a stupid accent like this. And she just looks like she's just, she looks like an alien has studied a person and is just doing an impression of one. That's what it looks she, like. Uh, she's the one from Weird Science. Yes, yeah, Keller Brock. Yeah. What accent did she have in Weird Science? I can't remember. I just remember, like, I, I'm not sure she was always cast for her acting ability, I won't lie. Well, this is oh, the, the hospital, by the way, in this, um, it is completely salmon pink. It's the most 80s hospital I've ever seen. All of the tile work, everything. So the film kicks off. Um, Steven Seagal and his family get killed, and he is in this coma. And when we see Steven Seagal in this coma, he's obviously got a really weird, hairless, boyish body. And yeah. Kelly LeBrock has just fallen in love with him, this coma patient, like completely and utterly falling in love with him. And he, Why? It, <laughs> Hush. And it's made up. There's a, there's a joke where she like lifts up his sheet and like sees his genitals oh, and is like, I, I hope you wake up. And I thought, ah, right, okay. So sexually assaulting coma patients. Um, and but I was looking at him and I thought, I know you've been in a coma for seven years, Steve, but someone could have cut your hair, mate, because he's got this really ridiculous scraggy hair like me when I wake up in the morning. This like buffant hair, and he's just got like a kind of ancient Chinese like. Um, martial arts grandmaster goatee, which wouldn't grow yeah. in naturally. There's like perfectly shaved cheeks and then just this silly beard. Um, and then he wakes up and obviously wants to take revenge on his family. There's an awful training montage in it, an awful training montage um, where he is just wearing this. It's like a kind of like a shell suit jacket that's like that's like white and black, and it's hanging off him anyway. But he's only zipped it up halfway. And he's running, and it, and so his, sh- his the shoulders almost like coming off. He cannot run. I know it's been covered before that Steven Seagal cannot run. He looks preposterous. He just flaps around, and even his legs don't look they don't look real. It looks like it's just been weirdly superimposed. So there's Can no he run any better than Rowdy Roddy, Roddy Piper? Oh, that's a good question. He looks sillier. <laughs> if I'd love to see side by side footage of them running, yeah, because Steve, it looks like um, it, it looks like um. He's running because he's so frightened that he's got like a like a fight or flee thing. So he's not thinking about anything apart from running. So it's like he's just propelling himself forward. <laughs> it's a, it's really bizarre. There there are love scenes in this film, um, and I'm not sure in real life if Steven Seagal, even though he was married to Kelly LeBrock at the time, married to Kelly LeBrock, uh, I don't think he'd ever kissed a woman because he does a lot of I call them Rutger kisses. You know uh, where Rutger Howard in his films when he kisses a woman he basically basically just slams his face into theirs. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of that in this, like really like, like full yeah. on harsh kissing, really awkward sex scenes. Um, Harrison Ford is another one with really weird kissing style. Like, I don't know. It's, it's like, it's like he's chewing on something. It's really odd. Anyway. Um, so yeah, there's, and the film is just a lot of like sort of quite, quite nice Aikido, but too much of the film is just spent on um, this like love this growing he bear in mind seven years have passed he wakes up finds his whole family are dead devastated and then within 15 minutes he's completely in love with Kelly LeBrock so bear in mind no time like what a couple of hours has passed for him and he is completely smitten with Kelly um his acting is odd but it's quite unique because of course he's got that kind of husky whisper that he does and he's not a bad actor it's just a really he's just a very odd screen presence um because he's six foot four but he's got like no shoulders and he just looks like a tall boy um and he's just like a really odd screen presence basically um strangely understated isn't he yeah 
he also so it's not bad it's fine it's, it's his own thing um but he also he's constantly pulling and i know this you can't see my face he's constantly pulling a face uh in the fight scenes and when he's just like running around and doing the action and stuff and the face he pulls is like it's almost like someone with glasses quite far down their nose trying to look over a wall on their tiptoes and he pulls this face all the time um, so it's just this odd, like constant jib. And there's a scene at the start. This is the last thing I want to say about it. Cause I know I've talked for a while. The scene at the start where the film would have just ended 15 minutes in, um, where he, to sort of, you know, cement his tough guy acumen sort of thing. He goes into, um, this New York kind of market and it has a bit of banter behind the guy with a bar about watching the oscars and you know the guy behind the the counter doesn't watch the oscars because they're shit and steven's a guy wants to watch the oscars it's brilliant stuff um so he walks in and as he's getting his champagne this gang of uh like guys come in and blow the guy behind the counter away with a shotgun he's got a double barrel shotgun and he just walks in and just shoots him in the chest and takes all the money steven seagal comes out from one of the aisles and they see him and they point the gun at him and he walks really slowly towards them and, the, and then mm-hmm. they have a bit of banter and then he like knocks the gun out of the way and they fight and I thought and he and but the way the fight starts is Steven Seagal says oh you're not going to use that on me you haven't got the guts and I thought Steve less than 30 seconds ago <laughs> we, we saw him kill someone so that doesn't work now we know he's got the guts he's just done it and and the guys look really shaken and I thought why what and then he just kind of gently moves the gun out of the way and then and then a Unfortunately, it's the last fight we see for 45 minutes um, because he's too busy yeah. slamming his face into Kelly LeBrock as hard as he can. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's just weirdly boring. Uh, it's good at the start, good at the end. And then, and I'm thinking, if this is his be- one of his best films, am I going to go and watch any more? Mm. I think part of the, yeah, part of the problem with Stephen Scow is that in terms of like his oeuvre, is that really like under siege was his obviously biggest movie uh i can't think of a bigger one than that and no sorry and i've never seen anything else and that wasn't that good but i i've never seen anything else which is as good even as that like i'm never nicely surprised by a steven seagal film i'm always just slightly disappointed like mm-hmm. you know with with van damme or something you can uh you can watch a lot of his back catalogue and enjoy it anyway and find some hidden gems there sort of thing and it's the same with you know same with other action stars you can find some like hidden gems which are just enjoyable but Seagal it's like it's just there's nothing there aren't any real hidden gems there's nothing interesting about his back catalogue as far as I can see I mean perhaps perhaps he's had a few more hits than say Don the Dragon Wilson but mm. We are determined to find the sacred good Don the Dragon Wilson film. Absolutely. I will say as well that I think Steven Seagal films are films that I would rather watch with you or you and Chris because I think they're that level. Um, there's, there's too much downtime in them where you're just looking at clothes. It's not like... Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, so you know, you, you I'd appreciate it more with someone else. Like the amount of times I just sat there and thought, bloody hell, that shirt is too big for you, Steven. Um but that's not as fun when I'm by myself. It's not something you can say too often these days, is it? <laughs> <laughs> no, most things people say when they watch Steven Seagal films now in the last 20 years, uh, I've seen this footage before. It's just been reversed. Um, 
<laughs> because he's not on, a, not on like going downhill. Um, so yeah, uh, yeah, I'm disappointed, and I'm going to watch a few more, but I'm going to do it in your presence, quite frankly. Right. Okay. I'll supervise. Uh, right <laughs> then. Uh, I'll talk about Creep and Creep Two. Have you seen both of these or just the first one? I saw. I kind of saw the first. Faye watched the first one, and I was doing something else, and I remember bits of it. I know the story, but I did watch the second one, and I remember yeah. thinking that the second was superior. That is correct. Well, obviously these are just opinions, but correct. <laughs> anyway, but still. <laughs> um, yeah, so these are, they're both about, only about 75, 80 minutes long. They're found footage horrors, but don't hold that against them because they're good. So um, they're about a very creepy guy indeed called, uh, well, played by Mark Duplass. Um, and he's, he's really oddly amiable. Mark Duplass in this. Uh, it's a really clever and nuanced performance, I'd say. Um, in the first one, he invites this filmmaker to come make a video of him because he claims to have cancer and he wants to leave something to his son. Um, so it's sort of a day in the life type thing. It quickly becomes apparent that the story doesn't add up and actually he just wants a friend. Um, and when the filmmaker, uh, who is played by Patrick Bryce, the director of the film, uh, when he isn't on Mark Duplass's wavelength, things take a bit of a turn, should we say. It's a really efficient and sometimes unbearably tense little horror thriller. And I, I love films where you're genuinely meant to like the monster and they seem nice. And they seem mm. like pleasant people. But you know that there's going to be a transformation. And I love watching that transformation happen in, in real time and watching like the little realization moments that this person's a bit kooky. Love it. And this is really good for that stuff. So uh, and I suppose that kind of tradition started with stuff like Psycho, um, obviously where Norman Bates was very amiable. And then, and also Peeping Tom as well had the same quality to it. Um, Creep 2 is even better than the first one. And this this one is about this uh, female vlogger who is trying to find a really interesting encounter for her web series. Uh, now, uh, Mark Duplass is openly just nuts. He admits that he's a serial killer and she kind of she likes this mad openness that he has. So she just kind of goes along with it. It's really cool because there's this constant ambiguity about whether she really believes his claims of being a serial killer or if she just enjoys his theatrical nature. And so she's yeah. she's chasing the danger, she's chasing the hyperbole. And and I think it says something about that kind of need to garner attention online. Like how do you like she's got this quite boring web series, but then Here's an opportunity to court some real danger, and it's like, how far are you willing to go to get the clicks, sort of thing? So yeah, this the creep two is is more horrifying, I'd say, and, and quite a bit stranger film than the first one. There's this almost quasi-sexual nature of the relationship between him and the lady adds this interesting new layer. Um, yeah, so both films are brief and very compelling. And and it uses the found footage conceit really well. Uh, There's a I remember there being like a real like you say the ambiguity a lot of subtlety of the performances because it because it's so um, based on just two people if if there's no weak link between them 
and and it kind of keeps that going straight through. I was interested right up till the end. Yeah, uh, because in both stories, uh, both films, then the people involved in it are actively participating in making this video. So there's always a reason for them to be filming it sort of thing, even when it's like, oh, should we turn the camera off? It's like, no, I, you know, I need, we need to film this sort of thing. So, and, and of course, what's cool as well is that you, because they're both invested in the video, it's like, you don't know where that footage is going to end up. Will it, is this going to be footage compiled by Mark Duplass's character? Or is it going to be footage compiled by his possible victim sort of thing? So it could be victim or perpetrator. It's nice. Uh, they are making a third one as well. And I'm quite looking forward to that because I am confident it will retain the same quality. Because I think you, there's you know, room for a lot of quite crazy stories, as long as they keep it simple, you know. And you see his tip as well, which is good. It's oh, yeah, always nice just, to see tips in films. In the second one, he just, he just like, yeah, because when he meets the woman for the first <laughs> time, he says, I just want to be completely, you know, open and honest with you and just, just completely gets naked in front of her. And it, yeah, that's where that kind of quasi-sexual thing starts because it's like, you know, would he have done that with a man? Not sure. And it, oh, he's horribly manipulative. Um, I will say as well, when I, I, I do, I, I haven't seen many of his films, but I, I do really like Mark Duplass. Um, yeah. And I remember one of my like um, uh, strongest memories of him was watching, um, oh, Safety Not Guaranteed, which which I really liked with Aubrey Plaza. And I remember there was a scene, and, it, and I, I could, because I'm a musician myself, I was watching the film, there's a scene where they're camping. And he pulls up this kind of, I think it's like a like a lap steel guitar. Uh, and he says, oh, I've written a song for you. And I thought, oh, don't, don't. And then he plays this song called Everybody's Talking in Their Sleep. And it's just, it's really charming and gentle and brief. And I thought that was actually really, really nice. Uh, and it's really, and I believe he plays the instrument himself. So it was, it was just a really nice moment. Because whenever anyone picks up a guitar, even in real life, I struggle. So in yeah. films, I, I really uh, think, oh, don't, don't, don't make just me cringe. Don't touch that. Yeah. Uh, I, I think I've only seen him in Jeff Who Lives at Home before this, which is pretty cool. Uh, that's is a comedy that, day, you know? So Is that the one with... Um, what's his face? J- Jason something? Seagull? Sudeikis? Seagull. Seagull, Seagull, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah that, was, that was really good. Um... And the uh, so the next film for me is Wishmaster Two. Um, I, I I went straight into the second one. Um, sorry, where did you see that film? Where did you see Creep One that and Two? Were, Creep One and Two are on Netflix. Yes, both on Netflix. Um, Wishmaster Two, which I watched on Amazon Prime. <laughs> it's such a quality golf. Oh, that was really good. Yeah, I saw it on Netflix. Oh, this next one I saw on Prime, unfortunately. Um, so this is Wishmaster 2 with Andrew Divoff, who I've, I've loved ever since uh, he turned up during the FMV sequences in Red Alert 2 on the PlayStation. Um, I, I didn't watch Wishmaster, although I haven't seen it for a while. I came out in 97 because I watched it a lot as a kid. It was one, it was one of my favorite horror films for a very long time as, as a kid. So I thought, I don't think I've ever seen any others. And I know he was replaced um, after the second one. And I'm like, no, I, I want I want a bit of divvy, 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 don't I? So I watched the second one. And I probably will watch the first one just to kind of wash the taste out of my mouth, to be honest. Because So the second one starts off with uh, a, a woman and uh, a, her boyfriend breaking into an art gallery 
and they steal this statue, which they drop, and inside it is like a like a crystal, like a, a ruby sort of thing. Sorry, and she puts it in a pocket, and as they're trying to escape from this this theft, which goes sort of it gets botched, she gets shot in the chest, but it hits the crystal in her pocket, breaks apart, re- releasing the gin or genie played by Andrew Divoff, and um. Yeah, so it, that's how he comes into the world, and then his his goal then is to release the rest of his uh, the rest of of the gin that are sort of trapped. In uh, this can be done by the person who releasing them in the first place. So the woman in the robbery granting them three wishes, and upon the granting of the third wish, the gin can then take over the earth. So he's he's keen to find her and get those wishes out of her. Um, what this actually boils down to is him needing a certain amount of souls to do this, and a lot of the, like a weird amount of the film is Andrew Divoff just gets as in his human form, not his sort of genie form gets captured at the start and he gets taken straight to prison because they assume he's been involved in the robbery. And it's just him basically just killing the inmates by granting them wishes. And the whole film seems weirdly low budget, like much more low budget than I remember the first one being, I don't know if it relied more on practical effects, but there's some, some early CG in this and you think, no, don't, don't do that. Um, and then there were also, and I know you've got a problem with this as well. When a, f- a film doesn't stick to its own internal logic, there are things that you think, well, that, that wouldn't happen, would it, now? Because he, oh, the whole thing is the sort of conceit and, and the, the joy of the Wishmaster films are that Andrew Divoff, with his amazing voice, will grant someone a wish. They will wish something. He'll twist it and kill them, kind of like the leprechaun sort of thing. Um, but this what they've done in this they've obviously said oh the first wishmaster was like a weird cult hit so what we'll do is we'll come up with scenes like cool death scenes and then or clever death scenes in inverted commas and then we'll just twist the story around to fix them so people make wishes that they clearly wouldn't make in the situation ah. they're in uh so at the, for example at the start um the 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 female thief you know who releases the gin her boyfriend gets shot. He tells her to go, so she just buggers off. And then by the time the gin is formed, her boyfriend is in the corner, like clutching a massive chest wound from a gun from a gunshot, and he's clearly dying, and his life is slipping away. And Andrew Divoff leans in and says, um, "I can grant you one wish." And the guy who is lying there, who has just like sent his weeping girlfriend off into the night as he lies and dies in this botched robbery, says, "I wish I'd never been born." And I thought, what? And then, of course, then there's just this CG sequence of him like reverting to a baby and then eventually just disappearing from existence. And I thought, oh, right, so that's going to have some sort of knock-on effect to the rest of the film. But then I thought, well, that means she would never have met him. They would never be at this Robert. No, nothing. Just just an excuse for a CG sequence of a man turning into an infant. And (laughs) I thought, thought, right, okay, so that holds no bearing on the plot then. And it doesn't make sense that he would say that anyway in that in that situation. And then weirdly, the whole the whole premise of the film is that the jinn can only be defeated by someone who is pure of heart. So you've got this woman, this like lifelong uh, professional career thief just bumming around smoking fags as uh, and as obviously like never been honest in her life and is just a career thief uh, and she's completely uh, bogged down because she shot a security guard and killed him as she was leaving um mm. and, and at the end of the film I'm, it's 20 or plus so i'm going to spoil it uh the genie genie says i can only be you know killed by someone's pure of heart and she and her wish is oh i wish that security guard i shot was still alive and mm. And then, of course, the security guard comes back 
and then and then suddenly she's pure of heart, so she can kill the genie. And I thought, no, that's just one event in a thirty-year life. Like that's not being pure of heart. That's just that that you've done that out of guilt. So that's selfish, if anything. Um. So yeah, the whole thing when you pick the strands, you think, yeah, I'm not sure where this holds together. <laughs> and also, it just tickles me that like it tickles me in all these films in everything like this. Whatever the bad guy is, be it genie or whatever, when they say, I can only be defeated by one thing, and then they get tricked by that one thing. It's like, <laughs> this is the second film. Andrew Divoff should be right. I'm not falling for that shit again. I am going to keep my cards close to my chest. And also, <laughs> when people make wishes like I wish for more wishes, he says, I'll grant you any wish. And then they say something, and he says, I, I can't do that. It's not the rules. What I would do if I was... If Andrew Divoff came at me and said, I will grant you one wish, I'll say, right, can you can you really in in forensic detail like lead up the any kind of like any kind of addendums or like sub rules i should be aware of before i say something because this seems iffy but no no one does that so i think uh yeah i suppose andrew divoff's way out of the conundrum was just not turning up for the next film mm. yeah how can i stop this from happening again i know oh, i won't no. <laughs> i found a loophole I know, I'm going to cement up my letterbox. That'll sort me out. Um, so yeah, so it's not very good. And I'm going to watch the first one just to see if the first one is good. <laughs> I, I'm questioning my own... Is, I remember having some pretty cool effects in it. Practical stuff, so... Yeah, yeah. I am going to do it. So Wishmaster 2 is a, is, a, is, a, is a middler. It's not bad. It's you just... Wouldn't, you wouldn't wish it on anyone. So what's the next film you're going to talk about? <laughs> Weirdly, dead silence. So that actually works quite well. <laughs> the aftermath of that joke. Where is? Uh, why am Does I asking the star that? Donnie Wahlberg. I wouldn't say it stars Donnie Wahlberg. I mean, he's in it. <laughs> he is in it. Uh, <laughs> occasionally, it's such an odd. Where is Asian as well? So that's quite embarrassing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So dead silence. This is another prime movie. So this is James Wan. And I do admire James Wan uh, to an extent because I, I like the fact that he keeps keeps churning out old-fashioned ghost story type movies. And this was so Dead, Dead Silence was post-Saw but pre-Conjuring and Insidious, and it was it's actually his first stab at creating a, a creepy doll franchise. But well, I suppose actually Saw had a creepy doll as well, didn't it? But anyway, it didn't. Dead Silence didn't do very well, so I guess they just tried again with Annabelle and that later on. Um, so, why Dead Silence didn't do very well? Not quite sure. I suppose it was. I was going to say I I remember enjoying this film. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a weird one because it is, you know, it is it is good, and it's. I think maybe it just stands out in the period that it was made. I suppose, so. 2007 it was a time when there were some pretty brutal slashes around that was it was definitely a thing back then um and found footage was a pretty big thing um so perhaps this kind of more kind of spooky old-fashioned ghost story wasn't really what audiences wanted got to remember as well dead dead silence it was an original horror film if you remember the 2000s were absolutely dominated by remakes like you've got texas chainsaw Hills Have Eyes, Friday the 13th. Yeah, and, and also like the Japanese imports that were being remade as well, like The Ring and The Grudge and stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah so I guess it just got lost 
in all that. Anyway, so in this film, uh, Ryan Quanton, is that how you pronounce it? Don't know. He looks like he looks like a cross between Ryan Reynolds and Ryan O'Neill. Just gonna say it. There it I is. I think he's. Uh, I think he's. He stars in. Um, what was that one? Merlots. The um. Oh, True Blood. All right. Okay. I think he's in that. Yeah. Yeah. I recognize yeah, him from he's, that. Yeah. He's fine. I, I can imagine him being something like that. Yeah. So he. So he plays this guy who receives this random gift, and it's a ventriloquist doll. It mysteriously murders his wife. Uh, he is a suspect, which is where Donnie Wahlberg comes into it because he is the investigator. Um, Donnie Wahlberg just rocks up at different moments. Like wherever Ryan Quanton is in this film, Donnie Wahlberg, he will open a door and Donnie Wahlberg will just be there, like leaning against a door frame or something. And it'll be like, so, so you came, so you came to the graveyard, did you? And now all the graves are dug up. Interesting. And um, it's no, I'm not a detective. He's, hashtag he's, I am. He's so good. So like guilty looking and yet like Donnie Wahlberg refuses <laughs> to arrest him anyway <laughs> he so basically anyway, sounds like Christopher Walken in Nick of Time then in some respect <laughs> he uh so yeah his murder his wife is murdered and instantly he just goes out on his own quest to understand the power of the doll obviously no grieving instantly out on the road he takes <laughs> the doll with him Obviously, he takes the doll with him and he finds out that the doll may or may not be possessed by the ghost of a lady called Mary Shaw, who is this long dead ventriloquist um, back in his hometown of Raven's Fair. It's one of those kind of New England type cool Halloween towns. Great name, great name anyway, for town. Yeah, um, not creepy at all. Uh, the doll has this magic magical supernatural trick where he will fade all sound to silence um and and then speak to people and then usually someone dies at that point um yeah so the the whole thing about his like his instant belief in this supernatural explanation is ridiculous but it's actually kind of a relief because it means the film doesn't stop it doesn't get bogged down in this kind of slow realization nonsense it's straight into it and yeah he's straight on it he's instantly trying to find a grave to bury the doll brilliant uh so there are it's got everything all the kind of ghost story cliches it's got like cobweb filled houses it's got cruel spaces it's got morgue cemeteries all that it's written by lee wannell now of upgrade and invisible man fame um and this script is very efficient and fast moving to the point where any kind of plot logic is I remember a buzzing, buzzing, buzzing sequence in it as well, with like a, a, a like an elderly man and his carer. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I remember that really sticks out of my mind. Yes. Uh, yeah, some pretty good set pieces in it. Um, and yeah, I suppose with if you remember Saw, obviously James Wan made that was his big first hit, uh, and that, that had a lot of the kind of Seven style aesthetic tone that dark kind of uh, david fincher style whereas dead silence is much more i'd say it's much more aligned with kind of 80s horror there's very bold lighting and purpose-built sets and kind of over the top performances it's it's a bit um it's all a bit stuart gordon or possibly lesser john carpenter i suppose um this i'd say that the in terms of criticisms i'd say that the the music the score is a bit it's a bit bombastic and generic. It, I don't know, it could have done with a bit more eeriness and slightly fewer crashing drums. 
and, and there are a lot of jump shots in the film, but in the film, but it's that's kind of par for the course for James Wan, really. Um, and there's some flashy mid two thousands editing we got to overcome, but won't hold that against it. Yeah, but overall, yeah, pretty gripping, atmospheric. I've written it down for, for a rewatch. I've yes. written it down for a rewatch. It yeah, doesn't take fine. itself too seriously, which is good. Because if it did, then when you when you said you know the the doll uh, lowers all sound to a silence and then speaks to someone i've just got like um i can just imagine the doll like on a shelf somewhere and then someone picks up a gun and the sound goes and then the doll says put it in your mouth and pull the roger lloyd pack Uh, well that specific scene all over again like a really obscure <laughs> reference to a, a british comedy show yeah yep. God. well yeah, people just... looking along with depression and looking over like a cliff edge and then <laughs> come on off your trot don't be a knoll <laughs> <laughs> oh, i'll have to watch it again uh, <laughs> right yeah so that is dead silence and it's on prime obviously um, uh, well, as soon as we're sticking with the horror theme, I feel like we're playing a game of, of, of well, it's more like drafts than chess with us. Uh, and I and I counter with a horror, a horror film called Mara, um, starring Olga Kurilenko in a better performance than she put in in the career. Um, so yeah, this is this is. Have you seen this, by the way, Mara? No, I don't think so. It's a film about uh, the the film starts off with. Uh, a couple, a couple in bed, and a, a, so the, this sort of young daughter sleeping next to her, and she can hear these sounds. And initially, I thought, are they bonking? And the daughter kind of goes in, and then when she opens the door, it's it's made apparent very quickly they're not bonking, because the mum is just screaming, and the father is kind of like twisted in a Jennifer Carpenter esque, <laughs> you know, contorted, wide yeah. mouthed uh, grimace. And I thought, okay. Um, so then what happens is it turns out that this uh, th- there's this spirit that stalks people in their sleep and there are certain stages where uh, first of all you you sort of you dream and you and you you can sort of hear her and it's all about sleep paralysis and then eventually she sits on your chest in a kind of waking dream and then eventually the, the sort of final stage is that she kills you so the film is Olga Kurilenko who is a psychologist trying to get to the bottom of this and weirdly it ties into another film there's a guy in it called craig conway i don't know if you'd really know him but i watched this film and then just before it i'd watched another one which i'm going to talk about called estranged and craig conway's in that as well fair enough um but he's a sort of a british actor who looks a little bit like a sort of more tired david morse if you can imagine that um so yeah so the whole film is is fine uh uh, and and she's trying to piece together like what is this uh what is this this mara that, that you know she's seen obviously written on the walls in blood and everywhere she goes to um and the problem is it sets up this premise and you think oh this you know because it is sleep paralysis which i did suffer from as a kid briefly is terrifying absolutely mortifying that yes. you, you and you feel like there's something just outside your peripheral vision you can't move to see it it is terrifying and so there's this you see some of that and it is quite um it scared Faye a lot this film 
just the thought mm. of that because she'd never heard of it before and she had real trouble sleeping the night after this it didn't have that effect on me uh because halfway through what happens is she meets up with uh craig conway's character and he's mm. he is peaky he because of course he doesn't want to go to sleep because he's already on like a latter stage of this this mara haunting him he is he can only sleep for like 20 minute intervals so he doesn't go into sort of ram sleep he is banging about the coffee he's sponsored by red bull <laughs> he's he's got a <laughs> monster t-shirt on um yeah so he's keen um and and it kind of gets unveiled that uh you know we don't really know what she is she's been around forever and there's no way to stop her we don't know what she does what she does and I thought yeah oh, that, that's that then really isn't it and that sounds pretty hopeless doesn't it may as well knock this off um and yeah and when it does that you think oh I mean what what that does is it does take away from the inevitable you know the usually inevitable dusty book in a library that explains exactly how to stop it but you think well if this is just something that can't be stopped then it's kind of a I, I know exactly where this film is going to go then. And mm. it does. So it's yeah, it's it's I think it's like if I look at it from my perspective, I kind of enjoyed it as as a you know, a pretty generic horror, but it, it affected Faye much more than it affected me because of what it puts forward. And I just wish that it focused more on that sleep paralysis realistic terror aspect than bringing in a ghost you know and then just saying oh, yeah, don't worry stop it it's just gonna happen let it run its course it's like having a cold uh, so yeah it depends on what you find frightening how much you'll enjoy the film really mm. is it when was it made 1946 oh right she must oh, she must be young <laughs> senior um no it's um it was made in i think it's 2018 all right so it's pretty recent yeah 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 okay um if, so is it worth if, should i watch too, it too recent to be that generic if that makes sense i did think right. come on it's 2018 yeah. something a little, little spice um should you watch it no Okay. No, I think, right. you'll be, okay. I think you'll be more on my. I think what'll happen is you'll be interested by the sleep paralysis, and then when it doesn't really fully explore it, you know, fully, you'll think, oh, that was more interesting than actually what the film focused on. Yeah. So, uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. All right. What's that available on? If I were to watch it. Oh, I think this was a Netflix one. Sounds like a Netflix one. Middling horror. <laughs> Famous people <laughs> in it. Olga <laughs> quite a few films recently. I think three yeah. or four. She needs a better agent. Um, she's fine. Like she is yeah. fine. It's just yeah. yeah. Um, okay, I'll quickly bang through Insidious Chapter Two, which is on Netflix now. Chapter One and Two are on there. Don't think Three's on there or Four. Anyway, it's another James Wan. He made this in 2013, uh, same year that Conjuring came out. So he yeah, two films in one year. Um, I mean. And I Cannot separate them in my mind. Is does this got Patrick Wilson? Yes, they both have Patrick Wilson in them. Anyway, so well, here's the thing. I mean, well, The Conjuring, for all its faults, was at least a handsomely crafted bit of horror, and it felt like kind of a weighty bit of old-fashioned horror. Insidious Chapter Two feels like it genuinely feels like a side project, like something that James Wan and Patrick Wilson were like knocking out on the side. If you see what I mean, as a hobby. It looks oh. weirdly cheap and trashy, uh, and the script is 
oddly stupid. Uh, and it's Lee Waddle again, so no excuses. Really, like, self-serious. And all the actors seem to be playing characters who, you know when in horror movies, when the, uh, the characters seem to know that they're in a horror movie uh, in the way that they act. And, and like, react as such. Yeah. yeah. So they'll see someone sitting on a bed in a room, and rather than just walking quite quickly around in front of them to, you know, who are you? What are you doing here? The walk really slowly, creeping around them like a camera would. It's like, well, you wouldn't do that, would you? Anyway, so it's like they're complicit in the tension building, which just makes it come across as stupid. Uh, it's literally all jump scares as well, this one. There are no frightening images or any lasting moments at all. Uh, I mean, at least the first Insidious film had that creepy red dude, if you remember that. It's like red and black dude, I can't remember. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I so know which one you're that was quite a lasting image, but there's nothing like that in this one. Um, yeah, because when he points at the crib in the first one, I thought, that is terrifying. Yeah. But there's that in the second one. I, again, that's a, a slow moments in the first one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it is a direct continuation of the original. Um, and it, I don't know if you remember how much. You remember at the end of the original, Patrick Wilson goes into this kind of netherworld type thing, ghost world. And then, um, and well, gives in this a, one it's, a hug. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it seems in this one that Patrick Wilson's character never really made it back from the spirit world and the person who is living amongst them is an imposter. Which, now there's potential there for some creepy kind of doppelganger stuff, you know? If Patrick Wilson's just pretending to be himself. Uh, so, but... The film has got no interest in that aspect of it at all, basically. And it just gets bogged down in its own st stupid mythology. Um, and then it starts messing about with the dual worlds thing um, in a quite confusing way. There is also a twist in the film um, later on, which is lifted straight from Sleepaway Camp. That's two Sleepaway Camp references in this episode. Really. Anyway, <laughs> but... Again, you think about how impactful the twist is in Sleepaway Camp, but in mm. this, it's just, it's just another half-baked idea thrown into the mix, uh, and it's just lost amongst shrieking strings and crash cuts and jump scares. So it is lame and quite boring, and I don't think I'll bother with the other chapters. There were chapter, th there's chapter three and then one called Last Key or something. I think they're prequels, so... I'm guessing that they don't have Patrick Wilson. Not really. It, yeah, there's. I, I lost it. Like I said, I, I found them all so middling that I've like with the key, the nun. I've just completely lost interest oh, in, yeah. in. It's the it's the mythologizing, like you said. It, it it's just like you're watching like you know in Cities Four or whatever, and you think, oh, really? Like, like when you look at something like It Follows, you're like something snappy, well done, neat idea, boom, done. Like horror, mythologizing in horror films just to get the fanboys all wet and horny it it's it does nothing for the rest of us just make it like a solid idea like the whole thing about patrick wilson whom we both fancy coming back from like a dark world and then being an imposter of his own family boom that's 90 minutes of solid that's gold your that's, that's your, your film yeah patrick can do this um but then it's like no let's just do a lot of other stuff and jump scares no yeah. boring boring yeah. boring boring yeah yeah so that's, that's a real shame. Chapter two. Yeah, don't bother. Just uh, the first one was kind of fun in a, you know, ghost train. I think, 
fairground ride type way. Everyone just needs to watch Space Station 76 and then just kick yeah. the DVD player off a cliff. Um, <laughs> I, I, this is a, a two-minute from me. I'm going to talk about Two Guns with Mark Wahlberg and Denzel Washington. Right. In, in which Have you seen this, by the way? Is this something you're familiar with? I have not seen it. I, it's the kind of thing I... It's probably on the watch list somewhere, but... Yeah. Well, it's got Edwin James Olmos in it, if that'll tip it over the edge for you. Yeah, I did notice that. That was that probably would tip it over the edge, to be fair. His hair is still wonderful and luxurious, by the way. It was weirdly flyaway in Miami Vice, but now he's he's put some gel on, he's really got a grips with it, and I perfectly understand where he's coming from. This film also features a sequence with Edward James Olmos, where he is he's eating a meal in the most awkward way I've ever seen. Right, He's got someone tied to a chair opposite him, and he's like a really threatening kind of uh, sort of uh, Mexican drug lord in it. But he's sitting there wearing a white suit, and if you imagine this, he's trying to deliver these really portentous lines to someone, saying like how much their life is in danger. You know, if someone doesn't do something for him, then they're just going to get killed. But while he's doing this, if you can imagine, he's sitting in like a almost like a deck chair with his legs crossed, and he's eating a meal that is to his right on a table that's quite high, and he's he's leaning over with a knife and fork. So he's kind of it's like that. Just put the table, just eat, just either stand up. Or put the table in front of you. <laughs> so he's delivering these lines and he's eating this awkward meal off to his right that's like slightly too high. Brilliant. Um, and that's the film. Bloody <laughs> <laughs> hell. Minimalist. <laughs> uh, no, so the, the film is you've got Mark Wahlberg and Denzel Washington as two at the start. We, we're led to believe they're uh, sort of crooks. <laughs> And they rob banks and, you know, they're uh, looking to exchange the money for drugs. And pretty early on, we, we realize that they're actually not who they claim to be. And they're doing it for uh, more positive and positive moral uh, reasons than just nicking money so they can buy fags and gin. Um, also, the names of my knees. But uh, so it's a, it's a kind of a buddy film. Uh, not a buddy cop film, but there's, there's, there's some nice chemistry between them, some nice banter and stuff. Although Matt Wahlberg just comes across as someone pretty much and he's trying to be like a cheeky chappy but he's just inherently like unlikable so he, he misjudged mm. that i just remember saying every time he said anything instead of me thinking oh mark you're, you're one i just thought oh you're a twat so that was disappointing um especially at the start when there's a competition where they've got to like shoot chickens that are buried in the ground up to their neck and you mm. think well they could just be targets, and really have to be chickens, do they? Um, Mark, Mark Wahlberg isn't isn't a naturally charming presence. I wouldn't say he no. hasn't got he uh, he does like he's like stoical, and he does like he can do heroic roles, okay. But when he tries to be a cheeky chappy, no, it doesn't come off well. No. He's he, not well, like, really charming. He, no, not at all, because I think the best film I've seen him in is um, obviously moving aside from stuff like Boogie Nights when it comes to films in the action genre, as stuff like um, The Nice Guys. Or, the, sorry, yes. The Other Guys. The Other the Guys. guys yeah, because um, yeah, he's very, very funny in that. Yes. Um, or like in something like, um, what was it called? Stepdads or Daddy's Home or something? Daddy's Home? Uh, yeah, is it called Daddy's Home? At least he is kind of funny yeah. in that. The film isn't good, but he well, is funny. It, it, it's because he plays comedy roles as he does dramatic roles doesn't he and that's what's funny because it, it comes across as really deadpan he just I says think, i don't think sure he's that very i'm not sure he's a very talented actor i think that's part of it i don't think he really differentiates between comedy and drama but 
it just happens that he is funny when he's put beside an actual comedian, if you see what I mean. So, so yeah, well, this the, when the film kicks off, and it is kind of like a fun romp, and you know, again, they don't they don't know whether to trust each other, and they've got there's like lots of banter going on, and Edward James almost is in it, which is all good. But it, it as I was watching it, I thought I'm. I thought I'm I'm not going to remember this in a few years because I remember it came out and I thought oh it's Mark Wahlberg who I, I quite like and it's Denzel Washington was obviously good and and then I thought no nah, I can't really wa- I'm not going to watch that I've got other stuff to do and now that I've watched it I I just thought it's really not memorable at all yeah the the plot is really boring and. It's it's got a really nice performance by um, Bill Paxton in it oh, uh, right. as a sweaty southern uh, guy with a very dodgy, yeah. a very dodgy moral code. But and that was really nice. And, but I just thought as a as a film, I mean, taking up taking up Bill and my love for the actors, mm. it, it felt very generic. And it wasn't All like right. a, so like if they made uh, Nice Guys Two as well or Other Guys Two, I'd be straight there. Yeah. But with this, it's like. It feels very much, you know, like a kind of relatively light-hearted uh, sort of buddy comedy, which is fine. Again, that's a genre I really like, but I think my mm. love for the genre carried me through than it would a lot more people. I don't know how it was received, actually. Mm. I'd be interested to know that. Probably quite middling, I would have thought. Yeah. Um, it like is by the same guy who did um, Contraband as well, um, which also had Mark Wahlberg. But again... Contraband was another action thriller type thing. And it was like, I remember thinking as I was watching it, this is pretty good. It's quite well made. But then I don't really remember any details about it whatsoever now. And yeah, so middling is probably the word. And there was a sequence in it as well that I I, I thought, okay, I didn't. There's a sequence in it where Denzel Washington, there's a woman that he's obviously um, sort of going out with or dating or whatever. And when we first see her she's in she's in an interrogation room uh, sort of you know um there's a lot of kind of dual, dual personalities and and, and um uh, what's the word sort of double crossing going on sort of thing yeah and we see her you know uh, and as as a cop undercover cop talking to Denzel Washington and then the next time we see her they're in a hotel room and you're like oh actually they they know each other but she's just topless for the entire scene and it's like just top us straight away and Denzel right. Washington is kind of lying in bed up to his waist under a silk sheet and I, I thought it felt really odd um, because I thought well obviously she's a very attractive woman but I thought you really don't need to be topless here you could just be like bringing him over a drink and then you could just do the exposition but you're you're just like to- glaringly topless for like a, a good length of time and it, it seemed odd it seemed like mm-hmm. something the producers requested because the right. film Although it does have gunfights in it, quite a cool gunfight at the end, it's quite lighthearted, and it's all about like kind of banter and stuff like that. So it just seemed a bit slightly out of place. Hmm, that sounds weirdly. Yeah. So you think it was like a kind of misogynistic insert from a dirty producer or something? It, it did. It really like if she could have it been. Just sound like a Joel Silver request. <laughs> <laughs> Bless him. No, it, it just seemed. Um, yeah, it was just like, why are you topless? Like this is the th- this is the thing, and because I'm more aware of it now, it's like I'd rather see Denzel's tip, like let him get his bum out. I like let let the magic happen. Like let's let's see some dude bum, but it's like why why are you topless again? 
You could just, even if you just were like negligee or like brown knickers, why are you topless wandering around your motel room? Um, yeah, yeah anyway, just, yeah, just seemed a bit silly. Okay. But the film is good. Um, the film is good yeah. if throwaway. Right. And that is on, what's that on? That was Netflix, I think. Okay. Yeah, I might check it out. Um, you, sh- you should. You'll like, enjoy it. I do like most of the cast. So, yeah. Anyway. Thank um, you very much. Right. I am going to jump to onto Demon House. Demon House. This is See, a this sounds like a trashy 80s prime, yes. Like, like a nasty, gore-filled, neon-drenched, forgotten golden horror. Oh, if only. If only well, it was any of those things. I thought you were just singing Queen of the Stone Age then. Wow. This is a documentary, in inverted commas, about (laughs) a guy investigating a haunted house. Well, he actually buys the house. Um, Right. Here's the thing about this up front, right? I figured that this film was meant to be satire because it's got this very deadpan delivery and it's got this kind of really over the top scratchy editing and very kind of US TV style, very bombastic tone. There's, and there's like freeze frame, slow motion, monochrome footage, reconstructions, you know, all this kind of stuff. And the way, the way it kind of jumps all over the place and these mundane details are given this enormous dramatic weight like there's one bit where there's like you find some oily substance on some blinds and it's like what that's going to be yeah evidence of a ghost i suppose um so and i thought this is quite cleverly done actually if indeed it is satire right okay um however when was this made sorry uh quite recently within the last 10 years oh okay okay but However, it is not. This is supposedly a legitimate documentary. That's amazing. Um, like, <laughs> because, right, there, there is a line, right? This is just an, an example line of some of the things this guy says. I dreamt of a giant goat man who blew dark smoke into my mouth. I thought, this is some serious shit that means something. And, you know, you say that in a deadpan way and you're thinking, what? And it's like, but that's no joke. This is literally a ghost hunter genuinely making this documentary. So, right. Okay. So it, it takes itself very seriously and he's not joking. And he even allegedly got a bunch of people to put like 10 out of 10 reviews on, on IMDb, which is quite amazing. Mm. I don't know whether there's, so I don't know whether this is, maybe there's another kind of extra layer an extra kind of meta layer and actually it is fake but he's convincing us to be convinced if you see what i mean a- anyway i think if you treat it just as a standard found footage thing then it's just about bearable um because if you do then it does actually raise some vaguely interesting issues with kind of veracity and um so it's really just him investigating a haunted house, really, and going back through the history of the place, meeting various people who used to live there, um, mostly poor African-American families. Um, so, and what's what's quite cool, and what would be amusing if it weren't real, if you see what I mean, is that the people 
are talking about things that aren't necessarily supernatural. So, for example, you get like reconstructions of like kids supposedly being possessed and attacking each other when they could just be kids misbehaving or just, in fact, just kids, you know. But, but of course, it's given this horror movie weight by the kind of editing and the music and stuff. So, uh, and there's, there's another moment where some slightly strange basement architecture leads the documentarian to conclude that this must be a cavern specifically designed for satanic rituals, just instantly jumping to that conclusion. And and the, the kind of the hyperbolic nature of it makes it actually more believable as a documentary because, of course, that is what passes a documentary these days. And and it does touch on certain issues, um, like I said, with the kind of veracity of these things. Like, for example, he he's trying to like talk to like former uh, residents of this place, and basically they just say no, not interested. And then of course, as soon as he as soon as he offers them some money to talk, suddenly they come forward, and suddenly they are talking to him about all these weird things that happened in the house. Of course because it makes it more interesting. They're going to possibly you know, get paid for it sort of thing. Um, and they they will play up in front of the camera for him and like a, a, a kind of mysterious creak and they're suddenly just like racked with fear and stuff. This um, really sounds like a satire. I know, it really does. He even points out at one point that demonic possession tends towards places where poverty and crime are rife, which of course... But they also happen, places where poverty and crime arrive also happen to be the places where mental illness is more prevalent, for example. So anyway, like it's, you know, it's quite fun in that way. Uh, it gets quite bogged down a lot of dull pseudoscience about electromagnetic activity. Mm. Um, and honestly, a lot of the supposedly creepy moments really involve the presenter, the documentarian guy, kind of lunging at his crewmates aggressively. Um, but they're just not, it's hardly homicidal rage, put it that way. And yeah, all this stuff where people start acting strangely are just boring and unconvincing. There's occasional quite effective scare where you'll get like a dark shape entering the frame, although it's clearly just someone's shadow of someone's finger or something. Um, and and then you'll get other bits where people suddenly start going wild, supposedly. But really, it's just one of their one of his kind of dude bro crew calling people a bitch and getting all aggressive. And mm -hmm. yeah, so not really, not really demonic possession as such. Just a slightly slightly unpleasant as yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Then yeah, and the final section is him locking himself in this demon house. And it all goes a bit paranormal activity. Uh, and there's some quite good sound design there. Um, some creepy voices and stuff. But at the end of the day, you know, it was done better. This stuff was all done better in Blair Witch Project like 20 years ago. So I don't really see it doesn't it seems a bit surplus to requirements. If if it is just a massive joke and he's gen and he, he really doesn't believe it, but he's managed to convince people that he's a genuine documentarian. Then that is interesting, at least. But I don't know. I think he's just a bit of a charlatan, to be honest. Not I'm very, just, not really worth it. I think the two points I'd like to make about that whole thing are: um, if someone came up to me and said, "Is your flat haunted?" and I said, "No," and then they said, "If I give you two hundred quid, yeah. is your flat haunted?" I'd say yes. Yeah. So. 
that's that and the other thing well, is exactly and these are people you know it's a really poor community as well and you know these aren't wealthy people so, so it's, it's, like, it's almost quite sort of um manipulative yeah yeah like the way he's just saying i use a lot of money oh actually i do remember my i do remember my um toilet lid creaking actually once that kind of yeah. thing uh yeah it's just it's just harsh it's just taking advantage of a like a poor community uh, which which is interesting because if you look the word ghost hunter if you contract it it's gunter and if you contract mm. it further it's gunt oh so, so i think i see where this is going yeah it sounds You're talking about gunter out of friends i'm talking about uh killing gunter with arnold schwarzenegger actually <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that man so that's died his hair. Demon House. Demon House. Um, On I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll stick with the. I'll stick with the horror theme as far as I can, and move away from what I was going to talk about. Talk about a film called from 2015 called Estranged. Okay. Uh, this is very much prime territory, I believe. So this is a film uh, starring James Cosmo. Good, because I do like looking at his face. Um, Simon Quarterman and. Amy Manson and what this film is about is Amy Manson and Simon Quarterman play a sort of young couple which I'll go into in, in detail in a second and they're on holiday somewhere in I don't know like Spain or whatever and they're just on a moped and they you know, out a few drinks they're speeding they're messing around driving around like young and in love and then they slam into a car and she is temporarily paralyzed and she has to go home and spend some time with their with their family to recuperate. And this is where the bulk of the film takes place. Now, Amy Manson is bearing in mind that the, her and Simon Quarterman are meant to be twenty somethings, you know, off doing a load of magic mushrooms in Thailand and saying it was a spiritual journey when really they just got battered for six months, then they go back and get a clerical job. That kind of thing when they're like right. in the early 20s. Amy Manson can pull that off, but Simon Quarterman is clearly 40. And what happens is, it, the first like half hour of the film, I just think you're 40. You're 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 in this you're in this house and she's uh, she's she's recovering from this debilitating car crash that you were a part of because you were riding the bike and you you were kind of drunk and showing off. And and you're 40 by the way. You are 40 and you're traveling. <laughs> And you're you're dressing, so that was a problem. And also, it's you know you said earlier on about uh, people acting like they're in a horror film. Yeah. Um, it's more like Simon Quarterman just acting like a prat in this because uh. it's almost like he managed to get the part, and the agent said, "Right, you're playing someone who's twenty. And Simon said, "I'm forty. And he said, "So you've just basically just got to be a bit of a pillock because that's what people in the twenties are like. So. If you imagine the setup where, like, Amy Manson is like a she's she's coming out of not not a coma, but she's had this really physically debilitating uh, crash, so she's kind of learning to walk again, and she's always always pilled up, and she's been taken back to her family's, uh, you know, this um, American uh, uh, kind of rural bucolic farmhouse, uh, sort of big big old big old almost like an old. Um, What's the word like a not a ranch, but a big house in the middle of a load of fields, yeah. effectively like a farmhouse. Um, and James Cosmo's the father, and her mother is, has got like early onset kind of Alzheimer's, and she's got a brother and a sister. The brother, by the way, who's played by James Lance, who I literally don't think I've seen on TV since Alan Partridge. He's the one that talks <laughs> with a really pronounced S. 
It's really distracting. Ah, well, yeah. So it's an interesting cast. There's like people I kind of know from other stuff. What were you going to say, sorry? I swear there's a lot of British actors here. Mm. I think they are. Yeah. Um, and so what happens is the, the start of the film is just irritating because of Simon Quarterman, because he just treats everyone with contempt. He's just like smoke. You know, they say, can you not smoke in the house? And yes, he smokes in the house and he's taking the piss out of them for being a bit backward. And, you know, uh, you know, listening to like the gramophone and, and, and just basically just being old fashioned, but he's, he's quite hostile about it. And, I was just thinking, you can shut up if you want. And it made me think, because Amy Manson's character is so polite, you think, why were you attracted to this guy who's 40, by the way? I've seen his passport. Um, so then the film after that shifts towards her realising that this family and her family may not be uh, what or who they say they are. And it's her, obviously in a kind of a misery thing where she's all, like sort of an invalid trying to trying to solve this mystery but she's she's limited in what she can do in this house and her ability because she's constantly drugged up you know she's in a wheelchair she, so that 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 side of it's really interesting but it kind of it's it's too silly if it was more grounded and more creepy it would be interesting but it it gets silly and i think the characters are too busy playing caricatures of people as opposed to anything more subtle and because it's not treating the script with any kind of um respect and they're just being silly and all like having fun Mm. you think i kind of wish this was a bit more subtle because it would be really you know whenever you watch anyone who's in a um in in a situation where they're not fully capable you're kind of always rooting for them but that's kind yep. of gone because the whole film is so silly. You just don't really get emotionally involved in it. So it's maybe if really they th- hadn't um, cast a forty-year-old as well, it's, it's well. baffling, Rupert. I just thought it just looks silly. Like he's wearing his like his hoodie with tassels, and he's got like a t-shirt on. It's bright, and you're like, you're forty, mate. You're not. You're skinny, you're skinny, but you're forty, and it, and like when when he kind of is removed from the plot, instantly it got better. It's like, why it's like- did they cast you? Um, but yeah, I, I love James Cosmo. He's a great yes. physical presence. I love that man. Uh, he has that... gravitas. <laughs> yes, he does. Um, so they, whenever I see him, though, I do think oh, they couldn't get all the Brendan Gleeson then, could they? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But it's an interesting film, and there are some like creepy moments in it. But I just think oh, I just wish that it didn't go the way it it, it does go. I wish it was a little bit more subtle. Um, couldn't get a hold of Brendan Gleeson and Brian Cox was busy. <laughs> so we so we got James Cosmo. Um, yeah, and I think, the, the, like I said, this is a tie-in to the other one I watched called Mara with, with Craig Conway, uh, Conway, who plays the butler in this film. And it's just all... You know when you're watching a film and it's 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 kind of oh what's going on and then it reveals its hand and then it, you can get the sense of it just trying to get wrapped up. Mm. It's like right, that's us done towards the end now, and uh, I felt like it could have been handled a lot better, a lot with a bit more subtlety. So that is called estranged. Estranged. Mm. Mm. Okay. You're not going to watch that, know. are you? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I, James Lance's face annoys me. <laughs> I, yeah. I don't think that's the only reason why I wouldn't watch it, but yeah, it's just another nail in the coffin, really. 
Um, there's a scene in this film, and this is a like like to, to give an example of where it could have gone. Right, they obviously in these farmhouses you've got these like tiled, almost um, asylum esque bath. You know, the kitchens and bathrooms are all like tiled and big, and like these these huge pipes hanging out the walls. It's great to look at, like really cinematic. And she's in a wheelchair, and 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 he says to her, he's like this really kind of uh, flamboyant vet, and he's just always wearing like a, a dicky bow, and then. And 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 she's she's he obviously understands that she doesn't really believe she's starting to think oh I know I've like lost my memory from this accident but I'm not sure that that this is exactly as I remember my childhood and he says oh if you don't think I'm your brother that means you can suck my cock and she's she's like what and he's like oh no we we used to joke about this all the time do you remember and it's like a really awkward like really really like funky little scene and you think well that's actually like really dark and buzzing and playing on a lot of things and then and then that doesn't happen again and you think why uh, why can't the whole film be like slightly off it needed to be yeah. a bit off and it was too direct right yeah didn't have the subtlety okay yeah well um okay i'll talk about suspiria then suspiria no it must be suspiria I think isn't it yeah yeah this is uh the dario argento film from 1977 rather than the slightly boring remake and um yeah so it is about this young american woman who travels to germany to live in this dance academy uh it's a dance academy where people are literally running out of the place screaming and there are maggots falling from the ceiling and there's this weirdly hairy armed killer on the loose and i think this film is more famous really for its stylish kind of visuals than its plot to be honest because the plot is all over the shop to be honest so uh i i guess then it if it made perfect sense it would probably undermine the kind of dream logic that argento is going for because the lighting and coloring are astonishingly gaudy you're not I'm really sorry to interrupt, but I, I shit you not. My phone lit up. It's been on the side and it caught my eye. I picked it up and it's our yeah. mutual friend, Chris, uh, the daddy yeah. on Twitter, uh, yeah. posting up a picture of the Suspiria soundtrack on vinyl. Really? Oh seconds. my God. How crazy is that? That's nuts. That's pretty Creepy. Cool. Yeah. So I believe There's in a ghosts. a little now. Halloween spookiness. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely not coincidence. It's definitely supernatural. Oh. Um, I'm the go and hunt right. ghost now. I'm going to become a gunt. Yeah. So yeah. So lighting and coloring. Yes. Uh, they're weirdly like really kind of gaudy. But also the other thing is I noticed it is it's Argento's use of space in the frame because like virtually every shot in the movie, the the shape of the room that the characters inhabit is always like unclear or ambiguous. And it's to do with like really clever set design and framing, but it, it makes you feel really uncomfortable because you're never quite clear about the shape of the space habit, if you see what I mean. It's quite clever. Um, this is, I watched this on Prime and it's the, it's the 2016 remaster. So the classic problem you get with these kind of old giallo films is the really terrible post-dubbing. But, I don't know. It's it feels quite softened in this. It actually feels like the characters are sometimes actually speaking the words in the room, which is quite <laughs> remarkable. Um, it is it is a much more straightforward film than the remake, and its weirdness 
it's it's kind of weirdness and otherworldliness sort of limits how dated it could feel like it because it could be anywhere at any time really that said the the score the musical score by goblin is really abrasive and it's very much from a time when rambling prog rock was all the rage and it, the theme tune is kind of a, iconic but it does sound like a lame attempt to sort of recapture Mike Oldfield's tubular bells. Um, yeah. So, so it's that it's that kind of prog as opposed to like guitar prog. Oh yeah, yeah. Like like odd. It, it's like odd music, odd percussion type prog. Yeah, really kind of experimental type sounding stuff with strange noises and lots of screaming sounds and stuff. Yeah. Um, so. It is a quite a discomforting film because it's this juxtaposition between this slightly twee new age mysticism and kind of witchcraft mythology stuff, but then combined with this really brutal schlocky horror. And yeah, so sort of quite elegant, but also brutal at the same time. And it's, I suppose it's quite deliberate. And so it's a very kind of artfully directed slasher from a time, I guess, 1977. So yeah, before a time, Really, when slashes were turned turned towards the lowest common denominator in the eighties, I guess. Uh, but then, saying that, it did it, it clearly helped spawn some of the trash horror tropes, like you know people wandering off on their own, things jumping out of closets, windows blasting open, and a lot of sexy and useless squealing female victims, uh, and of course the final girl as well. So we got that. I would still say that Dario Argento's phenomena is a bit more fun than Suspiria. Uh, but you can tell that Suspiria is definitely in influential. You can see how, like, for example, Nicholas Winding Refn has been inspired by it. If you watch something like The Neon Demon. Also, I suppose, David Lynch with Twin Peaks. Um, but yeah, it's really well made. Beautiful and kind of haunting. Uh, but honestly, it's it's really just about the visuals, because as soon as anyone starts talking, it does collapse into mediocrity. Really, there is a very young Udo Kier in this film as well. Oh, I'd like to point good. out, sort of handsome in an alien kind of way. But he he has a line that I had to write down because how he managed to pull it off. He says, "Bad luck isn't brought by broken mirrors, but by broken minds." And it's like, what? It's such a, like, a ridiculous line. But he, yeah, he, bless him. He goes out there, he says it. Yeah, yeah. He, says it. he says it, and afterwards he doesn't look at the camera and mouth the word wow, which is good. Um, <laughs> yeah. what, what was your thoughts? I haven't seen either the original or the remake. I know there was a big fuss made, as with our friend Chris, about the soundtrack to the remake by Tom York. But what, of Radiohead fame? It was good, was it? Yeah. Uh, the... Well, the music was good. I found it a, it's like pretty long, and I, I admire the fact that it's very different to the original, really. Uh, and yeah, it, it was a bit more like Suspiria is like high class trash, if you see what I mean. Whereas yeah. the remake was very much um, kind of very art serious house horror. Yeah. yeah, it was very art house horror. It felt a bit more like something like Black Swan or something. That, kind of... that was the vibe I got from. I know Faye watched it, and a few comments other people have made that I was under the impression from the reaction to the remake that the original was the same sort of po-faced, 
uh, like I said, art house cinema, but that is just not the case from what you said. Not really. No, it's too, yeah, it's too bonkers, really, and too silly to be taken seriously. But it, yeah, the I mean, it's got a pretty cool final sequence, which is quite, actually quite disturbing in an exorcist kind of way. So, um, yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. Well, I, I know I'll watch these. I know at some oh, point, yeah. not, not out of choice, but I know I'll be scrolling along and I'll be like, oh, I'll, I'll check them when I'll watch the original and remake. Um, and from what you've said, they, they're different enough to, to be viewed on their own merit. So that's quite cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So. I, I watched, and the next one for me is, uh, well, actually, I'll, 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 I'll talk about my final horror film, which is Inheritance starring Simon Pegg and Lily Collins, who I didn't realize was Phil Collins' daughter. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so th- this is when I've heard about this film um, fr- uh, from, it must be a good few months ago, during the, it was during lockdown, where Mark Kermode, I was listening to his um, uh, Kermode on Film podcast, and he interviewed Simon Pegg, who was, seemed really cool. And I took from the interview that inheritance was a good film because Mark Kermode was, but I realized what he was doing was being polite. He was saying things like, it's really interesting to see you playing against type. We've never seen you in something like this. This is the first horror film you've done, isn't it? And, um, you know, and, and at one point I'm pretty sure he says, and this is nonsense. He says, oh, I, I didn't actually realize it was, it was you when I first saw you on screen. Now, having watched the film, mm. what he was skirting around the fact that this film isn't very good at all. Um, it, it's it, so the story is that Lily Collins and, and I've got another. This is a very kind of age-based uh, thing for me. With, with all this, Simon Quarterman clearly being forty in in Estranged, Lily Collins' weird eternal youthfulness was also personally problematic for me in this film because I thought she's thirty-one, and I kept on thinking, "You look, you look fifteen. You look like a 15-year-old. Yeah. And I, I couldn't shake it. And she's kissing her husband goodnight. I'm thinking, he just looks like your dad. Like, you look 15. And I couldn't shake it. Um, And I said to Faye, isn't this bothering you that she's like a... She's the DA. She's the district attorney for, for New York. And she, she's got this like life. And she's 15. And Faye was like, no, she just looks quite young for age, Brit. But anyway. um, So... You've got Lily Collins, who's the district attorney for New York, and she comes from a, a very sort of guarded um, childhood from her father, uh, Patrick Warburton, who's in the film for like less time than I am. Uh, and he dies, and her and her brother and her mother, played by Connie Nielsen, go back to the, the family estate, which is just a palatial mansion. And the will gets read. And she gets a million dollars. Her brother, who I'm not sure of his name, actually, I think it's Chase something, Chase with a C, obviously, um, who plays the deep in The Boys. Or the, the oh, animal. yeah, the guy, yeah, the guy from The Boys, yeah. Um, so he gets, he gets, she gets one million, he gets 20 million, and there's obviously this kind of favoritism going on within the family. And then she finds a USB stick given to her separately by the solicitor that says, you need to watch this. I don't know what's on it. And she watches it. And it's her father, obviously teary and drunk, saying, I'm, you're the oldest, so I'm trusting. You're the oldest, even though you look the youngest. Um, I'm, trust, I'm trusting you with this. You need to, uh, you know, you need to go to your old fort 
or the secret lies by her old fort and she goes underground and she finds Simon Pegg with a very, very unconvincing long grey wig. Very unconvincing. Uh, and he says he's been held there captive for 30 years and her father was bonkers and he just needs to be released because he's uh, been put upon. <laughs> so that's the film. And it's it's really weird because it seems like there's a lot of money here. Like the, 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 the sets are sort of quite, um, you know, it's, it's not all filmed on location. It's not just them in a room arguing effectively, mm-hmm. you know, they go, they go back and forth. There's clearly money behind it. Simon Pegg is doing an impression of Hugh Laurie in house. His accent is like this all the time. And I thought you just sound like if I shut my eyes, it's like I'm watching house. If you can just tell someone's got a lump on their ass, I will be like, Oh, that's you Laurie in house. Um, so the film isn't good, quite frankly, it, it, it's not even when the sort of twist happens and the reveal happens, it's, it's a, it's an interesting premise. Like why is, why is Patrick Warburton got this dude in a secret bunker in his garden? A, a bunker, by the way, that at one point is clearly seen from the house. A house, like, staffed by servants and family. So they clearly just see a light in the garden and say, what's that? What's that in the garden? Um, <laughs> the secret bunker. And, and, and the premise is initially intriguing. And then when it kind of... But then it very quickly becomes uninteresting just because of the sort of cat and mouse... Uh, dialogue between between Lily Collins and Simon Pegg. It's just not interesting because you you know there's there's not going to be an an exciting enough reason for this setup. It like that, that it's like Simon Pegg has been hidden in someone's garden for thirty years, and that is it. So if you imagine that wherever the plot is going to go, and mm-hmm. it's not going to be interesting enough for a ninety minute film. If if that is it. And it's not like a character study. You don't see enough of Patrick Warburton or, or uh, Connie Nielsen or get enough of the background of, of of the family to to get emotionally involved. You just kind of wait and you're just basically sat there for 90 minutes thinking, why is he living in their garden? Yeah. And then you find out, you think, right, okay, I'll turn it off now. That's how it felt. And the last 20 minutes of the film, I just felt like I sat through out of politeness. <laughs> um, it, what, that said, it was nice to to see Simon Pegg doing something different, yeah. um, and it uh, but he's just he's too familiar to 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 be yeah. cast in a horror film, and Lily Collins is so young that I just did not believe that she was the district. Well, she looks so young. I genuinely thought, are you the district attorney of district attorney of Manhattan? Really? Yeah, that sounds mm, fanciful, doesn't it? Yeah. She's got a very young face. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. And a very kind of sweet nature, so it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't quite sound right. There's a sequence when she lies down in bed with her husband and and the daughter between them, and I thought, you literally look like her older sister. You're so <laughs> young, which is good. She looks great. She's 31, but I, I yeah, it was odd casting. Yeah. Mm, so okay. It, it didn't. It, it it felt it felt cheap. It felt at like least a, like when you said the night the word inheritance, I. Th- had a feeling it could be like a dodgy knockoff of hereditary but at least it's not that i suppose there's nothing supernatural about the entire film and i almost wish there was <laughs> I, I almost wish there was yeah it, it's so one-dimensional it's just you the whole film is thinking 
why is Simon Pegg in this bunker? And then when you find it out, it's relatively uninteresting. And then you, then when you find that out, you're like, well, okay, I, I don't really care. But it's nice to see him in a horror film. Just shame it's not a good one. Yeah. Yeah, at least, I mean, he's, he's going to have to branch out, really, isn't he, as he enters his middle age, I suppose? He's 50. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, probably won't watch that then. Um, <laughs> and you won't watch what I'm about to talk about, which is The House at the End of the Street. Which is on Netflix. Is this Jodie Foster? No. This oh, that's the little girl now who lives down the lane, isn't it? Sorry, okay. Um, right. So this was, yeah. This is made in 2012. I'm not sure, but I would guess that it was probably made before the Hunger Games and they probably delayed the release until after Hunger Games to maximise Jennifer Lawrence's newfound fame. Okay. So because it's not on that level <laughs> um so it's there's this kid called well, a young man called ryan uh who is uh who's uh, she, all right we'll, we'll talk about jennifer lawrence first she she moves into this house right and she, her neighbor is this guy called ryan whose parents were killed um and he's this brooding kind of mysterious young man without any friends very much a loner he says to her at one point, uh, I like I like waking at dawn to write because all the best thoughts haven't been taken yet. So you can imagine what kind of person he is. Um, so, yes. However, so she quite fancies this Ryan guy because he's mysterious and brooding. But it turns out he has a captive in his basement, uh, a young young lady. Um, so who he ties up and beats and all this kind of stuff uh and this is uh this turns out to be his sister who was blamed for the murder of his parents uh who were heroin addicts anyway it's basically he's got captive he's a bad guy so he's a pretty rubbish captor has got to be said because she keeps on escaping from from this like underground cavern uh there's even a bit of reused footage of her escaping which is amazing are you serious like she escapes oh. so much they're like oh we're not gonna have that again <laughs> just, just show the same thing there's a shots yeah. running through the woods and it's like that's just the same footage again but yeah so anyway so basically yes jennifer lawrence is is moved to this new place and she's kind of attracted to this guy who we know has a captive in the basement but she thinks is just misunderstood now like this this is one of those films where there's some really forced drama in it. Um, so, for example, uh, Elizabeth Shue plays um, uh, Jennifer Lawrence's mum, and she invites Ryan over um, for dinner, sort of thing, and mostly because she wants to check him out, basically, to find out if he's good for her daughter. And she's just really, really aggressive towards him for absolutely no reason, other than he's quite sad and lonely. Yeah, okay, he's got a captive in the basement, but she doesn't know that. He's really charming and pleasant and just a bit sad. And she's just really harsh with him for absolutely no reason. Um, and in fact, everyone except Jennifer Lawrence is like really negative and paranoid about him for, again, for no real reason, just because he's a sad loner. So it's like they've seen the movie already or something, or they know something that we don't. But anyway, they'd have no reason to suspect him. Um, but then 
so that's the first kind of element of implausibility but then it kind of shifts the other way so he starts doing some really odd out of character scary things and of course at that point jennifer lawrence should just call it a day because he's being really weird but then she starts acting implausibly and just keeps going back to him and like you know apologizing on his behalf and stuff so yeah um anyway so it, it all ends up with some really just constant ridiculous decisions by characters for example where uh jennifer lawrence obviously find discovers this this girl in the basement this bedraggled girl this abused girl wearing a gimp mask in the basement screaming for her life and and jennifer lawrence like escapes from there uh, escapes from uh goes straight to the police yeah she, she goes upstairs and immediately uh takes her mobile phone runs out of the house um and calls the police as she's running um to to get safety to get herself to safety and to rescue this girl actually that doesn't happen Britt. in fact what happens oh. she goes upstairs to the kitchen um and has a and pours herself a drink and has a little snoop around to find evidence even though so she has just fought him off downstairs in the basement where he's tied up this girl uh and noted an inch of her life and so she run upstairs and the first thing she does is make a drink for herself to calm down and starts just snooping through her stuff through his stuff it's like it's just bad she's found evidence that's just forced tension yeah it's terrible and it's just bad it's bad character writing in a in a character driven film which is which is just bad overall um yeah so it's got this really deep cynicism about it because anyone who gives ryan a chance is completely betrayed and it, it's see, like overriding message seems to be that niceness is kind of punished and paranoia is rewarded um and it's got this really annoying cinematography with like loads of uh, crooked close-ups and dutch angles for no reason really haphazard editing and uh, these excessive color filters which are either like horrible sepia or deep gray and yeah so it's not even technically nice to look at it's it's just very grim in a very unconvincing way and no fun at all it's and, it reminds me a lot of the glass house right uh, with the uh, lily sobieski i'm yeah. really getting glass house vibes from this okay it is a psychological thriller which is more stupid than its audience which is a crime against cinema really isn't it so you also it's interesting as well that um, I mix up in my head Ryan Quantin and Max Theriot, who plays uh, Ryan in this film, because they look quite similar. Um, Max Theriot, I know mostly from um, the Bates Motel. He plays uh, Norman Bates' brother. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he is a good-looking man. He looks good. He has been to the gymnasium, and he has said no to the chips. But, yeah, I always mix him up and Ryan Quantin in my head. So it's interesting yeah. that he's called Ryan in this film. I just thought I'd point that out. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's not worth it though. Anyway, House at the End on Netflix to be ignored now. I remember yes. um, my dad telling me a story about my my mum watching films where my mum is a nightmare to watch um, horror films with because she will just say, "Oh, why, you know, like in, in that example you've just given, oh, why doesn't she just call the police, run off and call the police? Why is she going back to, you know, help the other person and then she's going to get captured herself? And my dad always says, because it's in the script, Sharon. 
but that was like that's like funny ha 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 but then you think these things have been happening for so many decades now and i mean that that it's like it's like just someone involved in the script process just say look we'll do yeah. something else like there's so many things you can do maybe maybe she tries to call the police why would you go upstairs and make a drink oh it's bizarre why yeah i don't know whether it's meant to be because she's still not sure about him maybe she just still still is giving him the benefit of the doubt but if that's the case then that's just stupid isn't it really like if that's the case then i've lost all sympathy for her um but more likely it's just bad writing and just well, an so it'll be like if we watch bad samaritan and then she breaks yeah. into breaks into uh, david Tennant's room and then sees that that woman like they're tied up in the corner and yeah. just thinks well there's obviously a reason for this i'll just leave him to it, yeah. it it's like why would that ever be a valid reason uh yes so yeah don't bother with that no i won't um and i feel like it will be very easy to not bother with that like i'll never even like <laughs> stop at it and think oh no, no i could watch that um i watched the gentleman the the new guy Ritchie film oh yeah um have you seen this at all or is this I have. Uh, yes i i actually really liked it yeah uh, enjoyed this. i i Right then, so the next film is Mile cool. 22. <laughs> cool. No, um, the, the gentleman. Uh, so I don't know if we can we can both kind of cover this together because the last uh, Guy Ritchie film I watched was uh, I always want to say Revolver, but it's not, Rock and Roller begins with an R. Throws me off. Uh, Rock and Roller, and I remember just thinking I could like in my head this between like Lock, Stock, and and whatever was after Lockstock, they all just sit together in my head as just Guy Ritchie making his films with his mates, and I can't really separate them. Um, so when this came out, I thought, well, I will watch this actually because I really, I don't know why, but I really like Hugh Grant, and I think I really like Hugh Grant because of his actual real life personality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love the fact that he just does is happy to the piss of himself and just laughs at his career. Um, so. I don't know if you want to do a, a little setup before we talk about it. Uh, I can't really remember the intricacies of the plot, but it's yeah, it's essentially kind of like quite well-dressed um, gangsters in London, and there's Matthew McConaughey's in it. He's quite amusing. But the key to the door is it's almost like a kind of like a mystery type thing, isn't it? With yes. um, what's his face, Hugh Grant as this really creepy amusing gay journalist and he's charlie, hilarious isn't it? and charlie he's in every film i see at the moment i forget hunnam. his name charlie hunnam yeah. yeah he's got a great voice that man yeah. really really great voice he looks great in this with a beard as well um so yeah it's uh, matthew mcconaughey like you say is, is is basically a weed farmer and he's looking to sell his business which is worth uh, billions um uh, and get out of it and it's it's sort of a, a Chris usual Guy Ritchie Chris Crossy yeah. uh, th- thing with uh, who who's on whose side and very snappy, very slickly edited, and the whole film is set up through the the main sort of spine through the film is Charlie Hunnam uh, being talked to by Hugh Grant, uh, who's who's an investigative journalist as you said, who has said he's discovered all these things and he just wants to be paid off effectively, mm-hmm. and I really liked it. Uh, I thought it was Guy Ritchie does have he's kind of like Quentin Tarantino in that he has a style that he can do and when people rip it off it's awful but and, and then you realize oh actually there is a there is an act to this because mm. it like sometimes even Guy Ritchie gets wrong <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> but I like the fact that I mean like the worst film he has made is Revolver absolutely the worst film he's made by a country mile apart from maybe that one he made with Madonna whatever it was called 
beach tide or something. Um, what was it called? Ocean spray or something? I can't remember. Um, uh, it's probably called Beached or something, isn't it? Yeah, it's called Call of the Lager, I think. Um, um, <laughs> I'll have to find out. That's you my can... father answering to the call of the lager. So, <laughs> um, yeah, but what I will say is um, one of the, the lasting impression I took away from this film, as much as I enjoyed it and the twists and turns and, the, you know, you see something and you see it from a different angle and everyone rocks up into these little cameos, it's all well and good. I couldn't stop. Every time it cut back to the main thing of Char- Charlie Hunnam and, and Hugh Grant, I just thought, why is Hugh Grant looking and doing an impression of Griff Reese Jones? Yeah. <laughs> I could not shift that. I thought, why didn't they just get to Griff Reese Jones? I loved it. I it yeah. was every time I cut back to him and his amazing jacket. I just thought, oh my god, I feel like I'm watching Griff Reese Jones, and so I, I loved it. Yeah, like, he, you could I, just imagine him turning up on set and just trying out this like weird camp. Oh, like he's such a strange like speaking style, like really kind of almost almost slurred. He almost sounds stupid, but he's actually very intelligent in it. But yeah, and you can just imagine him trying out this weird character and them just thinking, this is perfect. Just yeah. keep doing that. Everything you said, and the kind of the weird speech pattern and the, yes, it's all yeah. that. It's Griff Reese Jones, Rupert, honestly. <laughs> it is Griff. And it made me, when I was watching it, I think, oh my God, I can't wait to watch this and then watch the Smith and Jones sketch where Mel Jones uh, is a cannibal. I can't wait to watch that. It's, uh, like Mel Smith, sorry, is a cannibal. It's one of the funniest things I've ever seen. It made, this film made me fall in love with Griff Reese Jones all over again. Um, <laughs> And that's the main takeaway from it. Apart from the fact that I liked, I really liked Matthew McConaughey in it because I just like looking at Matthew McConaughey. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's a good film, and I, and it made me think. Um, all, all the um, there were there were a lot of aspects about Guy Ritchie's films, like the uh, the Sherlock films, that irritated me. Mm. Um, oh and, yeah. Yeah. They were fun, but they were irritating. And and I just think the thing is, he can be as irritating as he wants inside the gangster genre because it kind of feels like the modern British gangster movie is is his genre. Yes, and it, it, he needs to stay within that wheelhouse, to be honest, because his anything outside of that is always like, yeah, am I enjoying this, or is it just slightly irritating and smug? Not yes. sure. Swept Away was the film with Madonna. Swept Away, yeah. Mm. Prob- I guarantee you I'd r- enjoy that more than Revolver. <laughs> yeah, the other thing about The Gentleman, it, it, I don't know, it felt to me like weirdly good-natured. E- even though it's horrifically violent and stuff, it felt kind of a bit warmer somehow than something like Lock, Stock or Snatch, which are quite, are quite cynical and brutal. It felt a bit warmer, I don't know. To me, it, yeah. it, it is. It's almost like I see what you mean. It's almost like he's moved with the the times and the the the, the climate and realised that okay, that doesn't wash anymore. Let's make it a bit yeah, lighter, a bit more colourful, and poke fun at, at yeah, yeah. No, definitely. Yeah. Um, okay. I will watch it again. I will watch yeah. it again purely for Hugh Grant. Yeah, he is brilliant. Uh, okay, let's cover Vampires versus the Bronx, which is a new film uh, on Netflix. Um, made this year or maybe last year uh so this is a it's like a, a kind of young person's horror film it's um it's about basically this company this real estate company called murnau properties as in fw murnau um uh i, I is, don't know what that is yeah nosferatu 
he directed it. Uh, I I I was hoping for a minute you were going to talk about Vampire in the Bronx, the 1995 Eddie Murphy film. If only, sadly not. No, <laughs> oh, that's okay, okay. Um, yeah. So uh, this this property company is buying up properties in this Bronx neighborhood, uh, you know, with a view to gentrifying it, I suppose. Uh, and so this this kid called Lil Mayer is on a one-man, or otherwise known as Miguel, he's on a one-man mission to raise funds to save the properties, uh, particularly this kind of corner shop that he uh, frequents. And so basically the whole place is going to be gentrified by, um, as they say, white people with canvas bags. Um, Now, Miguel is in a little crew with his best buddies and a girl he really fancies. Sort of a bit of slightly more street version of Stranger Things, I guess, in that regard. and yeah there's there's various other characters there's this um there's this young girl going around vlogging in the community which could be annoying but actually isn't she kind of provides sort of narration in a way uh speaking directly to camera um there's yeah there's this is it, is it in, as long as in enola holmes or is it then... no uh, no it's it's very rare it's just to kind of set up the scene if you like um yeah and so this company uh they employ like local gangbangers to start causing a disturbance in the neighborhood so businesses are more likely to sell for example and the film also touches on how kind of fatherless kids tend to get drawn into crime by would-be father figures who promise strength and respect so it's quite an original setting and quite a unique dialogue style uh, means that the kind of the more hackneyed scenes feel quite fresh because it is pretty hackneyed to be honest um like this you know you get the usual scene of like a nerd the nerdy kid explaining how you kill a vampire and stuff it's quite cool that they have this kind of ready-made black vampire superhero film in the form of blade because they kind of worship blades that's kind of cool um and the the main kid is someone called Jaden Michael, and he's very sweet and charismatic, and you can see he could be a future star. Uh, there are very obvious bloodsucker parallels between the vampires and the real estate agents, naturally. Um, but what's quite cool is it doesn't kind of demonize the real estate company. It it actually shows that locals can see the offers that they're being given as an opportunity to become more socially mobile, something. Um, it's really nicely shot probably apparently on location so it was a very kind of cinematic eye and there's some good editing and the lighting is very 80s especially in the night scenes lots of neon um, neon in the sewers a la vamp or well yes neon everywhere really it's good and yeah sort of uh unnatural light sources everywhere and stuff so the problems are that i was going to say you've been pretty positive so far yeah the, the whole kind of setup and the context for all this is pretty good, but there is a big chunk in the middle of the film and no actual vampire stuff takes place. And I think it could have done with a killing or two here and there. The other thing is it's very, very child friendly or young person friendly. It's, it's almost entirely bloodless. Uh, and yeah, I think they could have pushed it a bit more to be honest. Um, but they don't, it was a bit, it's a bit disappointing really that they didn't have any kind of, you know, like the violence in, I don't know, like 
a Spielberg movie is more intense than the stuff in this. So I was just thinking that because I know when we one of the things we not disagreed on, but when we talked about say Enola Holmes and mm. when it, it clicked in my head when you said about uh, someone talking talking to the director to the camera, that I watched it. I watched Noel Holmes thinking this is very much I'm not the target demographic, and you watched it thinking I'm not enjoying I'm not enjoying this. But do you think that it's it's that again, or is it? Um, no, I mean I I because I did enjoy it to an extent, but I just think I think they could have pushed it a bit more. I think it's too coy when it comes to the violence stuff because I mean like there's swearing in it and that to obviously reflect like what's going on on the streets. I think the there's one settled. maybe maybe one or two f-bombs in it so it's not for young kids or anything it's like it's for like teenagers i'd say so i think they could have pushed it a bit but i don't know it's kind of all quite uh kind of easygoing really and and nice i I think that the other thing that was a little heavy-handed was that the the kind of the racial overtones were a bit heavy-handed like literally every white person is a vampire um like they like they probably could have done with a white character say who didn't live up to the locals worst expectations but you know it's there anyway uh it's overall it's pretty enjoyable there's nothing there's nothing fresh at all about the actual content or the plot itself but the settings and the characters are are unusual enough to make it feel a bit different at least so yeah it's all right it's pretty good Okay, okay. I thought I thought that it was uh, going to be a far worse. Film. I was waiting for a but, but it, <laughs> no, does it... I, I'd say, no. The issues are pretty minor. It's very fast moving and enjoyable. Is it a franchise starter? Not really, and I don't know whether it really intends to be. It doesn't feel like it anyway. It feels kind of wrapped up. It doesn't leave anything. I don't think it leaves anything open. The last film I have here is also going to be a, a relatively brief one from me, and that's a, another Mark Wahlberg film, not Donnie Wahlberg, sadly, uh, called Mile 22. Um, are, are you familiar with this at all? I'm struggling to remember if I've seen this. This is, so this is start describing it. This is okay. So this is a film where Mark Wahlberg is a sort of special forces operative who. Um, suffers from uh it's almost like his mind is, is is too fast for the world around him so he's constantly got this this yellow like sort of elastic band on his wrist that he that he snaps all the time because he's it's almost like he's slightly ahead of, of everyone around him his brain is always racing and it opens with a sort of botched hit on a a load of russian spies and it ends up with uko uh Iko Uwais, uh turning up at the embassy saying at an embassy, sorry, saying that he is, he's got information that will uh, give them what they need if they extract him to safety. And the, the mile 22 uh, relates to the 22 miles. They have to travel with him to get him on a plane and get him safely out of the country. Does that ring a bell at all? I think I, I've no, I think it, the trailer rings a bell. <laughs> <laughs> Right, Mark Wahlberg is apparently. I, I I do apologize for not doing my research here, but Mark Wahlberg has apparently made a few films with this director. Peter uh, Berg, yes, Peter Berg, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, and the and and so when I watch this, when I watched Triple Threat, which I talked about in a podcast a, a while ago, and it had 
Tony Jaa, Iko Uwais uh, in it. I thought, oh, this is cool. Actually, you, these you know, these these martial arts stars are getting in in big Western films. Mm. And the 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 problem with this one, unfortunately, is that you've got Mark Wahlberg and, and his team who are trying to extract uh, Iko Uwais. But the, the the sequences in it that show off his capabilities are really cut up. It, it's a, there's a touch of the Bourne films about them, so mm. you you can't really just really appreciate the choreography and the ability because you, it's just every second is a cut, and it's like oh come on guys, <laughs> I thought this was a fad. Why is this still happening in like twenty whenever it is? Yeah. Um, and also the, the the conceit of I like the fact that it's quite you know, the it's it's so neat it's just right we have got to get this guy from the middle of the city to to a to a landing strip twenty two miles away off we go and then they're just trying to be stopped by uh, by terrorists effectively on the way it seems yeah. like a really tight yeah tight idea but it's thrown off by uh, the the t- it's two things really one is the editing and and the the sort of um, the constant cuts in the action scenes uh, and which ties in also with when they're in there. So that's the sort of martial arts sequences, the kind of falter, but also there's a, there's a lengthy sequence in a, in a tower block where one of, one of their uh, group gets captured and she, she's in a room and she really needs backup and Mark Wahlberg uh, and Ika Uwais are trying to get to her to help her. And you have no sense of geography. So what you're left with is just them going through corridor after corridor, and all the tensions ramping. The music's getting louder. She's trying to keep away from this this squad that are after her, and I'm just thinking, I don't know where anyone is. I, I've no sense of building tension because I don't know if they're getting closer. They might be yeah. going the wrong way. I don't. I don't. I'm not with this at all. Um, uh, and 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 the other thing is, you know, in the accountant with Ben Affleck, where he is, what is it? What is it in that that Ben Affleck? This is it autism. I think so. Yeah, he's got Asperger's or something. It, it's it's played into the plot really well. I really like the accountant. Placing the plot, boom. With this, the whole the whole thing sets up Mark Wahlberg. This 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 uh, wristband snapping that he's he's always ahead and he's 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 yeah. sort of a little bit outside of the normal sort of human spectrum where it's you know he's not too good when it comes to comes to just just chat like chat at parties and yet he is extremely involved emotionally when the plot calls for it so mm. i didn't get the the sense that he was this the, the this uh, the sort of the personality and characteristics he had, they didn't seem to be just carried through. It was almost mm. just like an afterthought, and it felt really cheap. Whereas in the accountant, it was like very much up up, up front in the plot. In this, it's almost just like I, I don't know, just a bit of a throwaway thing, and I, it didn't mm. take it as far as it needed to go, and it felt needless. And it also felt like a franchise starter, which just it clearly just wasn't. Mm. <laughs> it was it's the way it starts and the way it ends. You, you, I got the impression like, oh, okay, they think this is going places, but it, it's not. Like, why, why would this? It's such a basic premise. Um, so that the editing and Matt Wahlberg's slightly intri- uh, irritating character didn't sell it for me. Yeah, you don't it, need it, to edit Eco UI. Oh, UI is that how you say his surname? Sorry, I don't know. Yeah, probably bad. 
you don't need to edit him because oh. you can do it all in camera. It doesn't need to be done. That's the genius is just the, the, this is what I don't get about the martial the fact they've got this world class martialist mm-hmm. like uh, in there. Just let him do his thing. Like let let me let me just drink it in. It'll be the highlight of the film. Don't do all this like snappy cutting. It just ruins it. it actually ruins it. Yeah. So yeah, it was. Um, I don't know. It wasn't good. No. No, uh, that's yeah. I'm pretty sure I haven't seen it, or it must have been so forgettable. I've literally forgotten it. <laughs> I can imagine. I can generally imagine that, yeah. Because <laughs> um, I've seen actually a lot of their other collaborations, and yeah, it, it's uh, Peter Berg makes these quite muscular, very masculine movies with Mark Wahlberg, and some of them are okay. You know, Deepwater Horizon was alright. Uh, Is that, that on one, the oil rig? Yeah, there was one called Patriots Day, which was all right. That was uh, the Boston bombing. Yeah, I mean there is these these the ones you've just said, the ones that are okay, are self-contained. Like this yes. this whole thing about like oh it could be a franchise. I think he did Lone Survivor as well. Like yeah, yeah, that could be. The, I know he's done four with him, so that could make sense. When you're watching a film that feels like an origin story, and it's almost like it's almost like you can hear the director saying, "Right, we'll set this up. The next one will be really good," but you're thinking there's not going to be a next one, so you just <laughs> kind of feel like you're watching almost like a tech demo of a video game. Yeah. It always uh, leaves a bad taste when you watch a bad movie which wants to have a sequel. It's like, mm, no, this has just made me feel even worse about it. Yeah. So that. Yeah. My lover, is me done? Well, I will... Um, I'll, I'll make this my last one, and we can carry over a couple more to the next episode anyway. So I, I, I'll I'll just talk about As Above, So Below. Is my I final. have seen this film. The the star in this film, I've forgotten the name, by the way, but she's actually born in Cardiff. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Valley, yeah. So she plays a slightly annoying, smug young woman who leads a journey into the catacombs under Paris to retrieve uh, some kind of magic stone, which has supernatural healing properties and can turn copper into gold or something. So she's very much a kind of Lara Croft type character. Uh, She's blindly courageous. She's steeped in historical knowledge and she's multilingual. Um, So the thing about this is used well, right? found footage can it can provide a level of kind of intensity and intimacy which can really work especially obviously with horror movies uh at its worst it is a lazy filmmaking form which is used to sidestep the real skill of filmmaking craft i Um, think i know which way you're gonna (laughs) lean you know and for example i mean like you know, like, why would you bother? Why nail a take when you can simply cut mid-shot? Why choreograph a scene when you can simply shake the camera instead? <laughs> so this falls into very much the latter camp, yeah. Of, yeah. I could just imagine, like, the director filming it being really quiet, and the moment there's any action, he just literally just points at the floor and goes, Get in! Work it! And he doesn't edit out him doing that. Oh, that'd be amazing. Oh my god. Why, oh why, oh why, why is this a found footage film? I've never seen such a pointless use of the found footage medium because the script 
doesn't have any naturalistic dialogue in it whatsoever because it's all like really heady stuff about uh, this mysterious stone and all this sort of mythology and stuff. And the performances are not naturalistic either. They're just like a regular film. The way the stuff they're talking about, they, I mean, it's literally like Tomb Raider or something, this stuff she's talking about. It's it's th- I remember them thinking that every time you you, you get someone who's like, it's, it's like this this very kind of like urban urban French characters. And then it, it's yeah. almost like the film does this thing of saying, aha, I know what you're thinking, but they're actually very clever. Look, we're going to make them sound clever for the next 20 minutes. <laughs> uh, and you're like, okay... <laughs> That's not, that's nice. That's natural. Yeah, uh, and and also no one ever actually acknowledges, really acknowledges the fact that they're being filmed. So there's literally no point in this being a found footage film. Yeah. Uh, so all you're left with is just nauseating camera work, uh, a load of shouting in lieu of actual drama, and totally incomprehensible action scenes. So the anyway, the concept is so hokey. And the setting is so kind of naturally spooky, these kind of catacombs under Paris. Um, so with that in mind, you've got the potential there for a kind of perfectly enjoyable, regular type movie, which is just made as a movie, you know, because it's almost like the Goonies or something, isn't it, really? These people going underground to, like, uncover this treasure sort of thing. But instead we get kind of, like, really, really bog-standard scares, like whispering in the dark and strange little girls wandering in the background and but, but I, I also remember from this as well now I, I did watch this a few years ago I, I remember watching it and of course no one like you said no one talks in a natural way no. so ev- everyone is irritating and yes. then it's filmed in an irritating way and then but it has um like ideas of pretension so it, it'll yeah. it'll it, it, they'll look at the camera and say these things and I'm just looking back thinking what you haven't earned any of this I'm not I'm not like oh that oh, okay yeah I'm really involved in this it's just a load of bollocks you're talking bollocks and this film is bollocks <laughs> it is it's so bad I, the sound design is alright <laughs> and I like the bit where near the end where you like sometimes there's a a few slightly surreal bits where there's like body parts in the walls like you see a mouth in the wall and some legs that bit was all right but oh my god but everything else it's just constant jump scares oh tedious like bits where there'll be like like a mad person with super strength and stuff and it's just please and the ending is so inconsequential i couldn't believe it It it's just what is that it? That's it. Oh my god! I, so, I'm gonna. I'll, I'll have a look afterwards. But yeah, I remember being excited with this because obviously, as the credits were coming up, I remember saying, "Oh, the the, the main you know, character in this is is from Cardiff," and and so they had that extra little like push for me of like, "Oh, I hope this is cool because it'd be it'd be nice, you know, see a Welsh actor, you know, now now, now that we've lost what's his name? Oh Andrew god, the guy Hopkins. who was in Hornblower. What's his name? <laughs> um. Oh, yeah, Yoan Griffith. Yoan Griffith. I mean, I, he hasn't been in a film for as long as I can remember. So I was just thinking, oh, this could be really cool. Actually, she could be someone we follow. And then it finished, and I thought, oh, it's just a found. And this is the thing: it's just a found footage film. It's what yeah. you expect from them: a load of shaky camera, a yeah. load of screaming, a load of running down dark corridors, and me just thinking, why? Why am I watching and this? It does not need to be a found footage film, and it should. In fact, no, it's not just it doesn't need to be. It should not be. 
it would be a better film without I'm pretty it. pretty sure that I know people that really like this film, though. I thought it yeah, was pretty got... well received. I, I th- it was. Pr- I think this critics, pretty yeah, weren't over the moon about it. But yeah, it's one of those like films which has had a has a weird cult following. Like, uh, I'll go on like the horror subreddit and and people will enthuse about it. But I I I have. I'm at a loss as to why, because to me, it's, it's, it feels like everything that's really wrong with modern mainstream horror, really. Do you think it's because of the sort of delusions of grandeur the film has in the script? I don't know, because, yeah, I don't know, because, I mean, they talk a lot about some, you know, pseudo history and, uh, and some pseudo mythology, but... So there are big words, but it's but it just seems to me like if... leaving them. It's just it's just in all the things they talk about in that film. It is an excuse to lead up and have a slightly kooky bit, and then it is back to the nonsense. Yeah, it, it, it nonsense is what it is. It was just as in like the story was nonsense, the the style was nonsense. The, yeah, and it just. Making sense of what's happening on the characters screen as well. Sorry, it was filled with unlikable characters. Oh yeah, it? totally. Totally. This is the thing. When, you, when that, I mean, I, I don't have a problem with unlikable characters normally, but it's when characters are clearly meant to be pleasant, nice people who you're rooting for, and I just thought I don't like any of you. I think you're all irritating young people. <laughs> Uh, do you think it, it i remember the the camera shake being a real problem for me because that is kind of that's the whole thing isn't it the, the when people think of found footage horror what they think pardon me what they think of is heavy breathing really loud breathing slightly shaky through the thing and then you see something and then the moment you see something boom it's camera down swinging with the arm yeah. as they run away and then you're like well what is what is this for the for the consumer? What am I supposed to take away as a view of this? I'm I'm watching nothing. Yeah, it it's mm, it's a, it, it's a form of filmmaking that is so when it is used correctly can be so good, but it's so rarely used in uh, an interesting or aesthetically pleasing way. I, I love it when uh, when you get these sort of niche subgenre films that are released and like a good found footage horror film or like a good mm-hmm. what are we a Gerald Lancaster you know you you think oh, that I really tuck into that because I know it's going to be good because it's such a high concept thing that's like driven through to the end yeah but yeah there's so many these, these are the ones that give give the give the genre a bad name but yep. um, so then I know you want to you want to wrap up and see, yeah so. Uh, it's film with a podcast, FOTP. Okay. I actually, while you were talking about, well, while you were complaining about As Above, So Below, I decided that not that there's much. I mean, if I go through one, you got Wish 2, which was a disappointing retread of the original, Mild 22, which I've already forgotten about, Hard to Kill, which was like literally was uh, the nail in the coffin of an entire career for someone. Um, and then Inheritance, which I've already forgotten about. Estrange, which was tedious. So basically, for me, it is the only good film I watched this period, which was The Gentleman. Yep. Wow, well, that's pretty that's good. Yeah. yeah, no, um, that's good. Well, uh, I watched a few good ones, like Dead Silence was good. And, and Creep and Creep 2 are definitely recommended. 
on Netflix. Um, but I think I'll, I'll you give... can really watch them. They would make a very good double bill. Yeah, as well. Yeah. And they they kind of just go straight into yeah. You just watch them back to back, and you still only be yeah. be there for about three hours. So yeah. Um, uh, but I'm gonna give top spot to Madhouse just because it's the more, most oh, obscure okay. one, and it's something I never really knew about before, and could very much be overlooked. But I enjoyed that. That's really cool. No, that's a good shout, and I'm glad you had that because, I mean, for me, I, w- I wish, I wish right now I said, oh, do you know what film of the week? Hard to kill. It set me off surfing the waves of Seagal's. Uh, history because I really wanted that to happen. Like I really went out of my way to try and make that happen, and and the fact that it didn't is 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 really sad. I, I like I said I know I'll watch more of his films, but I'll watch them with you. And was, but then again, that in itself is you know when you watch a film because it's good with mates, you're basically mm-hmm. saying it's it's a bit of a joke. So. Yes, yeah, it's like a bad video game is always made good in co-op. Yeah. Yes. Well, films of the podcast are the Gentleman and Madhouse. I've the two Madhouse and Dead Silence are the ones I've written down notes to yep. rewatch, and uh, we'll have to do this again at some point, Rupert. Yes, I'm sure we will in the very near future, because what? otherwise I'm going to get overloaded <laughs> with horror movies in my brain. What is the next film that you are going to watch? Mm, don't know. I. <laughs> kind of scraping the barrel on the streaming channels so i might have to um yeah i might have to look elsewhere for i i know that we were talking ones. i know we really quickly i know we, we mainly review films on this podcast but i have a flash in my mind of someone saying that arrow films are turning up somewhere else uh as in what like a on a streaming service. Well, I mean, there is a street. They do have a streaming channel on Prime. Oh, really? Arrow do? Yes. And it's oh, like five or a month, I think. That's probably what so, I'm thinking about then. Yeah, and I think there's a free trial, so it's worth a go. Get through as many as you can. That's my yeah. week started. <laughs> so that's awesome. Um, yeah. Uh, and I think they have some sort of, like, channel on on iPhones or something like that. I don't know. But anyway. Oh, like Apple TV. Oh, that was it. Apple yeah. TV, free yeah. thing. I don't get that. So Madhouse is on that? Uh, I think so. I've got it on Blu-ray, obviously. Special edition. Um, so I shall love you and leave you and love you again and call you back and never hang up. Bloody and hell. don't forget to check celebritysexmax.com. <laughs> Sex. Yeah. Okay. It's been a pleasure. Always. And I shall speak to you soon. Farewell.